Hello and welcome to Taking the Lead, a podcast from the Radiology Leadership Institute that profiles radiologists as leaders, seeking insight and inspiration from a variety of perspectives and experiences. I'm Jeff Rubin. Today I'm speaking with Dr. William Brody, Professor and President Emerita at Johns Hopkins University and the Salk Institute for Biological Studies. An accomplished electrical engineer and physician, Dr. Brody pioneered the development of digital radiography, ultrasound, and MRI systems while serving as professor at Stanford University in the 1970s and early 1980s. He co-founded DigiRad and Resinex, leading Resinex as president and CEO for three years before becoming the Martin Donner Chair of Radiology at Johns Hopkins University. Following seven years in that role, he served as provost at the University of Minnesota before returning to Johns Hopkins as university president, a position that he held for 13 years. This was followed by a term as president of the Salk Institute for Biological Sciences and subsequent roles as board member and advisor to numerous companies from large public corporations to startups a member of the National Academy of Engineering, the National Academy of Medicine, fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, the ACR, and recipient of the Gold Medal of the Radiological Society of North America. The depth and breadth of Dr. Brody's influence on radiology and healthcare as a whole is unparalleled for its unique focus and impact. As a regular listener to the podcast, I know you understand the importance of leadership development, and so I have a very special program to tell you about. The 2023 RLI Summit is an immersive weekend of high-impact education, inspiration, and collaboration with the best and brightest in the specialty. You'll learn from radiology thought leaders and business school experts about topics like sharpening your business strategies, understanding private equity, creating value in your organization and health system, and mastering negotiations. You'll also have a chance to put your learnings into practice during an interactive, real-world case study session with your peers. This will be my 12th summit, and I can tell you that it is truly transformative. This year's RLI Summit is being held September 29th to October 1st at the Seaport Hotel in Boston, just minutes from Logan Airport on the historic waterfront. To celebrate my 12 years of summit participation, we're offering our Taking the Lead listeners 12% off current rates. Simply register at acr.org slash RLI Summit and use the code RLITTL12 at checkout. I look forward to seeing you there. Bill, welcome. Thank you, Jeff. You know, that, that's a, an introduction that my father would have liked and my mother would have believed in the words of Lyndon Johnson. <laughs> but thank you. <laughs> it's a great privilege to have you and really looking forward to our conversation. Uh, let's start at the very beginning. Where were you born and raised? I was born in Stockton, California. And people look at California as beaches and mountains, but actually this is in the center it's, it's a valley. It's the center of the agricultural belt of California, a town of about 50,000. And a lot of people came out of the farming community at that time. Now it's a sort of a bedroom to the Bay Area and full of housing developments. It's quite different. 
Yeah. But but a lot of farms at the time that you were growing up, was your family involved in farming at all? How did no, they my, my father actually was a physician. He practiced, he was an ophthalmologist in the days before Medicare. He was adamantly opposed to Medicare, but he gave, so he, he did a lot of charity care. One day a week, he volunteered at the county hospital. And then he had patients who, if they couldn't pay, he'd, he'd operate on them anyway. But of course, Medicare was a great boon to physicians who were getting no compensation from some of their patients. Yeah. And so how did the family end up in Stockton? My father grew up in Nova Scotia, Canada. His parents were Eastern European immigrants to Nova Scotia. And my father went to medical school. He graduated from medical school at age 19 because it was the British system. And you went right through and apparently he got in when he was 16. And he interned in New York, and then he came out. He wanted to do ophthalmology, and there was a specialty eye hospital in San Francisco. So he came out, did his residency, and met my mom, who was a native San Franciscan. And so they wanted to settle in the Bay Area, and the only job that was available was in Stockton. So that's how he ended up in Stockton. Fantastic. And did your mother work outside of the house? She had a junior college education and was sort of a nurse, whatever they call it, LVN, I guess. And that, that's how they met. Uh-huh. And my grandfather was a carpenter on my father's side. I never met my other grandfather. He died when my father was a teenager. So I don't know what he did. I see. And, and yeah. brothers and sisters? I have one sister who still lives in Stockton. She's married and had a, bu- a bucket of kids and has a bucket of <laughs> Great grandkids now. Wow. Yeah. Fantastic. So you, you still maintain a connection to Stockton because she's oh, no, there? Just because of my sister and, and obviously nieces and nephews and grandnieces and nephews. Yeah. But otherwise, I don't go there. My son actually lives in Lake Tahoe. He's a software engineer, done cereal companies, and he likes the outdoors. And my daughter lives in Manhattan with grandkids. So by coastal. coastal. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Did you have any hobbies as a child when you were growing up? Yeah. So, you know, I had the quintessential childhood. I had played baseball a little bit. I was not very good. I took piano lessons, but I loved to fix, make things and fix things. And uh, I had a, I don't know if you remember the soapbox derby. I had a soapbox derby race car. Didn't do any well, good, but when we finished, I took an old bicycle and put the took the front tire off and put the fork on the on the soapbox derby, and somebody would pedal, and we go racing around the neighborhood in the soapbox derby car. And then I got involved in building radios, and eventually became an amateur radio operator when I was in junior high and a little bit in high school. What fun! So I always liked building things, and I liked electronics and. I suppose because of my father, I wanted to be a doctor, and because of my other interest, I wanted to be an engineer. Yeah. So when it came time, I went to a huge public high school where eight or over 800 kids in my class, 800, and 100 of them went to college, and the other 700, you know, went to work. But I had great physics and, and math, chemistry training in high school. English, not so good, but... And I was going to go to Stanford or Berkeley. In those days, if you had a B average, you could get into UC Berkeley. 
There were no SAT even required. Stanford was a little more competitive, but in those days, Stanford was a regional university because jet travel was just starting to kick in. So, you know, I was reasonably sure I'd get into Stanford and I was automatically guaranteed. And then I got in a high school summer symposium from NSF that was in, at a college in my, my hometown. And I spent a summer with this NSF symposium with a group of students from all over the country. And I ended up doing a physics prod project on x-ray diffraction. And that kind of, I didn't realize at the time, but that set a thread for, for radiology for me going back to high school. But I wanted to combine engineering and medicine, and there, there were no role matter, matters, models. There was a guy named Lee Lusted who was sort of the first imaging pioneer. I never met him, but I kind of read about him. There was no biomedical engineering. Bioengineering was were the people who repaired the EKG machines in the hospital. So the, the, I was mentored by this physics professor at the local university who'd gone to MIT and Caltech, and he said, you ought to apply to MIT. And I almost said, where is it and how do you spell it? <laughs> you know? And so I applied thinking, eh, I'm not going to, I never moved. I never was in Boston. If I had gone to Boston and looked, I probably would not have applied to MIT. It was just too foreign. <laughs> but yeah. Anyway, I did. I applied to MIT. And when I got there, they wanted to give me a biology advisor because they thought I was pre-med. And maybe that's why I got into MIT, because I was sure it was a mistake. But anyway, I ended up majoring in electrical engineering and computer science, and it was a wonderful experience. Yeah, fantastic. Wow. Be- yeah. Before we get into your college career, I want to ask you a little bit more about high school, and in particular, you know, this NSF project that you got involved in. It, it seems remarkable that the the reach of the NSF for this program made it into Stockton. It's crazy. I don't know why. I, I you know. I never asked, but you know, it was the Sputnik, just the immediate post Sputnik era and all this money was pouring in. And the person who headed up, a guy named Jesse Binford was a a professor at Florida in Gainesville. And there were a couple of other people from other universities, but the physics professor was local, really smart guy. And, you know, I loved it. We actually, I actually moved into a dormitory on campus and we just, did science. And that was set the seed for wanting to do research, I guess, and, and ultimately radiology. Yeah, yeah. And, and so all of the equipment for the x-ray crystallography project was available to you. And that was something that you... Well, well yeah. So we, we learned about, you know, you learn about Bragg diffraction. You shine a x-ray beam or a light beam at a crystal and it... it puts out a spectrum, a rainbow, if it's optical, and an x-ray spectrum if it's not. And to do that, you need an x-ray source. And somehow the physics professor had talked the local hospital into giving us their discarded x-ray machine. And I took it apart and built it. And, you know, we didn't really do any experiments. By the time I got it built, it was the end of the end of the summer, but I did get the, the project up. And so that was sort of an introduction to, to doing something, A, with my hands, but also with my mind. It was, it, was, it was pretty good. Yeah, yeah, that's really cool. Did you have any jobs during the high school time outside of the home? 
I had summer jobs. Once I worked in a department store doing stocking, you know, materials. And then later on, I got a job working for, so there was a lot of agriculture in our town. And there was a a fellow who had made equipment for processing tomatoes to make tomato paste. And then he got involved making devices that allowed you to automatically fill beer, beer kegs. I don't know how he got involved in that, but I, that was more after I graduated from high school and went on and I I got to fly around to breweries. I didn't really like beer. I, of course, I wasn't old enough, but but it was really fascinating. You know, I went to all the different breweries in the in the United States as they were installing this equipment. And you were participating in its installation. Yeah. So I was. I would go when they had to debug stuff. I mean, I was just a lackey. So you know, I would take photos and send the stuff back to the plant. I, I mean, I didn't do it. I, you know, I was, by the time I was in MIT, I actually was then doing a drafting, you know, doing diagra- diagrams of things and stuff. So it, it was, it was pretty basic, but it was, it was fun. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's great. And, and so, as you mentioned, you found yourself in Boston, you went to MIT and even though, you know, Caltech was mentioned and Stanford and Berkeley were nearby, the influence of your mentor drove you to Boston specifically? Yeah, because MIT, what, what happened is he, he said you ought to apply to MIT. So one day I got a notice, these different college recruiters would come to town Somebody from MIT was coming and I was in chemistry. I said, I want to get out of chemistry class. So I signed up to go to this MIT briefing. And the guy had a thick Boston accent and he was very, he's boring as hell. I said, oh crap, I'm I'm not going to apply there. Not nearly as exciting as Stanford. And then I got on a mailing list and they sent me the whole course catalog. And I started looking at these courses. And then I looked through Stanford and you know, engineering at that time at Stanford was just beginning. I mean, it was there, but it, it, it was it was definitely different from MIT. And I saw these courses and said, "Wow, that's really great." So I applied, and and that's that's kind of how I ended up. Yeah, I, I didn't apply to Caltech because it was too small, and I, I probably wouldn't have gotten in. It was more selective than MIT, although. All of us that went to MIT, each of us thought we we were there by mistake. You know, <laughs> I yeah, I understand, and and I bet you would have gotten into Caltech, but we'll never know for sure. Yeah. So you pursued electrical engineering as your major yeah. at MIT, and you mentioned that even at that stage, you knew that you wanted to be a physician. So I, even- I was pretty sure, but you know what? I didn't take any biology courses till I was junior or senior. And I didn't actually take organic chemistry. And so when I applied to medical schools, I applied to just three. You know, it wasn't, this was not competitive as it is today where people apply to 50. I applied to three, Harvard, Stanford, and UCSF. And I applied to UCSF and they sent me a thing said, you haven't satisfied the, the following five requirements. And they obviously had looked at an old MIT course manual because they had the wrong course numbers, but I obviously hadn't taken. And they said, we can't process your application till we go further. And I said, well, that's it. I'm not going to waste my time because I didn't do them, you know? And so then I get another three or four weeks later, I get a letter from UCSF saying, uh, we want you to come for an interview. 
and then another three weeks later. But but you know you got to deal with this this issue of the courses. I said, screw it. <laughs> so, yeah. and then I get it three weeks later. I get another thing. It says you've just been admitted to UCSF. <laughs> How about that? <laughs> and so then when I went for the interview, the guy who interviewed didn't didn't even know I was admitted. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and then I went to Harvard, and Harvard really couldn't figure me out because they said, what do you want to do? I want to say, combine medicine and engineering. This is before the Harvard-MIT Health Sciences and Technology program, which was spectacular. But and then there was nothing. There were a couple people I knew from MIT who went to Har- engineers who went to Harvard Med. One of them ended up getting a PhD, Roger Mark, as well. But, but Harvard kept saying, do you want to be a doctor or an engineer? I said, why can't I be both? Nope, do you want to be a doctor or an engineer? So I went to Stanford, and somehow the dean heard out, heard that I was had applied. I went up from Stockton. It was Christmas vacation, and I get home, and the dean's office calls and said, the dean wants to see you. <laughs> so I drive back 70 miles and met with the dean, and then he said, Bill, what do you want to do? And I told him. So he walks me out in the plaza, which you know very well, and he points over to the engineering. He said, the engineering department's about three or 400 yards away. You come here, you can, you can do both. So that's why I went to Stanford. Yeah, no, that's, it's excellent. And I mean, in your mind, while you were at MIT and you had this vision of combining engineering and medicine, how did that play out in your mind? What did that look like at that moment? Well, I wasn't sure. I got involved with eye movement measurement because there were a couple of people at, at MIT who were doing that. And I constructed one of these devices when I was an undergraduate to measure eye movement. But, you know, there wasn't a lot out there. There were people doing stuff with electrocardiograms and doing, you know, but most of the people who got involved with medicine were doing, you know, neurophysiology or, you know, more traditional medical research, not engineering. So it wasn't clear how it was going to happen, but I, I didn't really care. And I decided originally was not going to go to medical school. And I said, no, I really want to take care of patients. And so that's what, that's what I did. And then, you know, I had to do a master's degree. I was in an honors program that combined bachelor's and master's. And, and so I decided I took a course in artificial intelligence from Marvin Minsky. So there, there were Marvin Minsky and John McCarthy were the founders of AI. They were both at, at MIT and then John McCarthy moved to Stanford. And, you know, it, was, it wasn't a great course, but it was interesting. Min, Minsky was a character, to be sure. And they were working with perceptons. They were perceptrons. They were basically a one-node machine learning kind of algorithm where now you got hundreds of nodes and thousands. And I approached Minsky and I said, look, I have to do a master's degree and you need to do a thesis. I said, do you have anything that, for somebody who wants to go to medical school? And he pointed me to a biophysicist named Cy Levent, Cyrus Leventhal, who was working on protein structure. And they would do x-ray diffraction. So we go back to my high school. Of pro, they would crystallize proteins, do X-ray diffraction, and then from that they would get a map of the density of electrons in three dimensions. And he said the problem is for us to visualize this is a very painstaking process of taking plastic and and 
contours and building up a model and it takes forever. He said, there's a new computer shared, time shared system with a display it was one of the first computer displays at that time, vector, not real images, but vectors. And he said, I'd like you to work on that and figure out how to do three-dimensional display of electron density maps. Well, that turns out to be exactly what Elliot Fishman did with Pixar, you know, 10 years, 15 years later on, on rendering. But our display was so crude. I did it, but it, you know, it didn't, it wasn't particularly usable. And the other, the other curious thing is if I had been really smart, I would have understood that the mathematics used by these biophysicists to do the deduce electron density from Bragg diffraction would have been, was really CT. They were doing CT. We just didn't know it. And of course, there weren't the computers to do it. So there was kind of a common thread. Yeah, I mean, you know, a lot of really exciting projects and, you know, really interesting nexus between engineering and medicine that you were finding at that very early yeah. stage. W- during your years at MIT, and, and as well as, you know, once entering med school, did you have time for any kind of extracurricular activity? Well, yeah, I was, a sw- I was a competitive swimmer. So I had, was captain of the swimming team in high school, and I was captain of the MIT team team and I set seven school records at MIT, which is not saying much. Now, today's MIT swim team is really very nationally competitive. But in those days, we, we didn't have long workouts because the, the, you know, the class grinds were, it, it was a complicatedly difficult place, but it was fun. So I did that. That was my major activity. And you know, I was in a fraternity and so, and I ended up being president of the fraternity and so the leadership was something that was there from the earliest days, high school swim team captain, captain at MIT, president of the fraternity. What led you to pursue those leadership positions? I have no idea. People ask, people ask me, I guess. I, I mean, I was a swimmer and, you know, freshman year. In those days, they had freshman swim team. And they brought a new coach in from Amherst. And the workouts were so hard that everybody but me and one other person quit the team. And obviously, you know, MIT was not used to this kind of thing. So he asked me to call up all these people and get them back. And I convinced him to come back. So I ended up being captain of the freshman team. This this when they had freshman and varsity teams. And then captain of the varsity team. I was a mediocre swimmer to be to be fair, and I did not have the athletic ability. I'm the exact opposite body type of Michael Phelps, you know, but I worked hard and I loved it. And because it was, it was also a way to cope with the stress of MIT, which otherwise was pretty difficult. (laughs) It was. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't know about leadership. You know, leadership depends on the opportunity. It's not, you can't decide you're going to be a leader. Just, I think, and if you're a leader, whether you succeed or not depends on what the organization needs versus what you bring to it. And there are good people who, very good people who don't succeed in leadership because the organization is not ready for what they want to propose. So, yeah, yeah. no, an excellent observation and very well said. So I came under the tutelage of a man named Amar Bose, who was the best lecturer I'd ever heard. 
and he did the introductory electrical engineering course. But in those days, NSF come back again, was pouring tons of money into universities. And MIT had all these new assistant professors, which included Amar Bose. And he was just a brilliant guy. And, and because of that, we not only had these lectures with 400 people in them, we had sections with 30 or 40 people. And then we had, I had one day a week with Amar Bose and, and six other people. And Armar Bose said, when you saw, and he would give us problems, I'd think, he said, when I give you a problem, I don't care about the answer. I said, I already know the answer. In life, you're going to be asked to solve problems you've never seen before. So I want to know how you approach it. And, and it, it just struck. And so I went from freshman year, kind of, I did, I got a B average. And then after that, I got basically all A's. And it, it just was, it switched. And I realized that, at least in engineering, if you figure out the structure, you you can survive. You know, you don't have to spend as many hours. So that was Amar Bose. And I went to see Amar Bose after when I was president of Hopkins. I wrote him a letter and told him how important he was. He said, "You." I said, you don't know who the hell I am, but here's my bio. And so he, by then, oh, this is Amar Bose who started the Bose company. I didn't say that. I was going to ask that, yeah. Yeah, he started the Bose, and he, of course, built this billion-dollar company. So he invited me to come and spend a day at Framingham with Amar Bose. And we talked everything from MIT and research and what he was doing. At that time, he was, in addition to all the acoustic stuff, he developed a, a, a novel automobile suspension, which is now being used in high-end cars like Porsches and like. He was an amazing, amazing yeah. guy. Yeah. Uh, and that's what I got to rub shoulders with people, you know, like that. And, sure. You know, so. Sure. Yeah. Amazing how those folks that you serendipitously meet early on can be so influential down the line and yeah. those connections so valuable. So, so you mentioned you, you headed back to California, you went to Stanford for medical school, also pursued a PhD in electrical engineering. Did you, at the time that you began medical school at Stanford, envision that you were going to be working on both degrees simultaneously? Well, what happened is Stanford at that time had kind of a novel five-year curriculum which allowed more elective time. So I thought, well, you know, I'll go take another graduate course. I had a master's degree, but I wanted to take a few courses. So I enrolled in a few courses. And then at the end of my freshman year, actually, I saw a first semester of my freshman year of medical school. I was walking by the engineering department, and there was a sign that said, Electrical engineering qual PhD qualifying exams are being given in January. And I didn't realize that people would spend a year or two studying. They're they're all oral and they would study for these exams. And here I was in November, I saw this thing. I I just wrote my name on the list. <laughs> and the only time I had to study was Christmas vacation, because medical school you had to cram and so Engineering, you don't have to cram. You just have to know the principles. But for medical school, you know, especially in December, it was, you know, a lot of lot of memorization. So I went home and got my books out and did the best I could. And took the, in January, I took the oral exams and somehow passed, you know. 
And so then I walked in the engineering department, electric engineering department to the secretary and said, ma'am, I'm here to enroll in the PhD program. And she gets out this sheet. Fortunately, there weren't a lot of computers in enrollment management. And she said, I'm sorry, Mr. Brody, your name's not on the list. I said, well, look, here's the PhD qualifying exam results. And so she looks at it. She gets out a book. She makes a couple phone calls. She says, well, I don't know any reason why you can't do this. So I enrolled. And, and they didn't charge me two, two, two times tuition, which people would do today. And I even found, a, the dean actually found a, a program that would fund an MD-PhD for tuition. So I was, you know, I was set. And then the problem came to doing a PhD thesis, and that was hard. So what happened was I got enamored with cardiac surgery. The heart transplant was really developed at Stanford. Even though Christian Barnard did the first transplant, it was really all at Stanford, as as you know. And there was a guy, the head was Norman Shumway, who was the most interesting and influential character, one of them I've ever met, sort of. Very different from Amar Bose, but very influential. And, you know, I said, whoa, this is fun. I like surgery. And, and so I decided I was going to do a surgical residency, cardiac residency. And he agreed to take me. And then I was looking for a PhD pro, uh, project. And he said, well, there's this guy and just arrived in Double E who's an integrated circuits expert. And they were beginning to work on what became microprocessors. Stanford had a big investment in that. And we've just got a joint program to measure cardiac output in dogs that were having, or animals having heart transplant. And we were, gonna, we were measuring it with Doppler, and we were using the microcircuits to do telemetry so they could implant this in the animal and measure and to see. The only problem is they couldn't get the Doppler things to work. So I go, I went over, and this is Jim Mindel, who became the provost of RPI and then was at Georgia Tech. But he took me on. He was a great fellow. And so he said, Bill, can, can you work on this problem? So I worked on how to measure blood flow with ultrasound. Before there was any imaging, people had just started with a thing called M-mode cardiac ultrasound, but no images. And that was my thesis. And I got involved. And in, in the middle of it, I realized that this was really very quite similar to a problem in radar. And I had had a number of courses in statistical communications at, at Stanford and MIT. And so I said, oh, yeah, I, I think I know how to solve this problem. And for some reason, nobody else had, had figured that out. And so they would just, these things were very noisy and they couldn't figure out, they would make a larger transducer to make it get more signal and the noise would get higher because they didn't know how to process the data properly. And that's what my thesis was. But I did that without thinking there was any market for it. And then I went to give a talk on my thesis and there was a guy who was head of central research for Varian, which ultimately was developing, unknown to me, the first phased array ultrasound machine. 
And this guy sits next to me and he has a copy of my thesis. And I had been on call so by, by then, you know, I was in cardiac surgery and I had been on call and I was trying to sleep. And the guy was peppering me with questions. And I, to this day, I'd like to, you know, say something to the son of a bitch because he was getting all this free advice and getting, you know, intellectual property because I didn't know anything about protecting intellectual property. So, but that's, that's what happened. And then years later, Sam Maslach, who founded Accuson, which really had the first true sector scan, and they had phased array with, with Doppler, told me that they, oh yeah, we used your algorithms in our machine. I said, great, you know, I, great. I, when I did it, I didn't think there was any, any market for what we were doing in heart transplant dogs, but yeah, it, it's not an uncommon story in academics that this scientists and the people at the forefront of the development aren't always thinking about technology transfer and IP protection. I think yeah, it's better right, now yeah. than it used to be. Yeah, yeah. Now, now, while completing your PhD, you mentioned that you served as a fellow in the Department of Cardiovascular Surgery and as a surgical intern. And following your PhD, you completed a year of cardiovascular surgery residency, all of this at Stanford. And then you terminated your cardiac surgery training and went to the National Heart, Lung, and Blood no, Institute. No, what happened is I got, I was about to get drafted. Okay. And I could get a deferment by going into the public health service. Uh -huh. And so one of the uh, rotations of public health service was at NIH. And there was a surgery branch there and Stanford had sent some of their people there. So I went in the surgery branch to spend two years at the NIH, a year of clinical and a year of research. So while I was there in 1973, right next to the surgery was in the sixth floor of the clinical building at NIH. And next to it was radiology, which did not hold any appeal to me. But there was a pneumoencephalogram room literally on the wall on the other side of my office through a door. I mean, you know, it wasn't open, but I would walk by there and there was a neuroradiologist, Giovanni DeCiro. I don't know if you ever knew that name. He was in a wheelchair. I, for, I don't know why, but he, but he had this booming voice and he was teaching the residents. And I saw this machine that ro rotated people upside down and gave them a big headache. And I thought, man. And then one day they tore out the machine. And they brought this other thing in with a data general computer and something that kind of went around the patient. And in 10 minutes, it produced a 64 by 64 image of the brain. And I said, holy mackerel, this is, this is a revolution. You know, I talked to people and so I decided. Oh, the other thing that happened was the surgery, the cardiac surgery fellows at the NIH were required to spend six weeks in the cath lab just to learn about cardiac cath procedures. So I did this and I said, you know, this is just as fun as operating on doing coronary bypass. And, you know, and there's more time to think and do other stuff. And then I began to see, you know, that, that there were, there was a really a path. And there was a guy there named Jim Griffith, who was a bio, one of the early bioengineers. And he and I teamed up there was a fellow named Walt Henry who came from, was a cardiologist from Stanford who went to the NIH and put an ultrasound transducer on a toothbrush. And he created the first sector scan with Jim Griffith at, 
NIH. And when I got there, Wald is already finished. And by then, sector scans were becoming a product. And Jim and I decided that we could put another, an outboard transducer and, and shine it at the pulmonary artery and measure cardiac output. So we did that. And then I decided I was going to go into radiology. And so I go out to UCSF to interview and because I didn't want to go back to Stanford, although Norman Shumway was very supportive of my and, and supported me at, when I went on the faculty later. But I went to Stanford and the first thing I do is I get a series of interviews and I meet the chief resident and the chief resident, Tom Winter in radiology, nice fellow. He said, well, where, where, what are you doing now? And I kind of said, well, I'm, I'm, I'm doing research at NIH. <laughs> oh, really? Where at the NIH? I said, well, I'm in the, the Heart, Institute, Heart, Heart Institute. Oh, really? What, bat, what branch? And finally, I said, uh, cardiac surgery. He says, well, I was in the cardiac surgery program there, too, and dropped out and went to radiology. So unfortunately, the word obviously got back very quickly to the chief surgery at, at NIH. Apparently, Tom Winter made it out without Dr. Morrow knowing. Dr. Morrow was one of these Geheimrat, you know, tyrannical surgeons, very smart guy. Anyway, he decided that he was going to take it out on me for, for leaving cardiac surgery. It was a personal affront. And so I had still had clinical work and rounds and, you know, and no matter how hard I, I would present a patient, I said, this is a 33-year-old coal miner with rheumatic heart disease from Beckley, West Virginia. You know, I had no measured all, you know, I re memorized all the lab values. And then he'd say, what county is Beckley, West Virginia? And I mean, he, we could always find something. I didn't know. So that was painful. But he finally, I said, look, I'm going into radiology. You know, I've done my clinical rotations, but I'd like to spend, you know, six months in the cath lab. And so he let me. So I spent six months in doing cardiac coronary angiography and all the other stuff. So I basically got an, there was no interventional radiology at that time or interventional cardiology it was before angioplasty. But yeah, so that was great. So, so, so you went, you, you mentioned you went to California then to begin your radiology residency and you chose UCSF rather than going to Stanford. Yeah. And, and well, in part because Stanford Hospital was, was really a bimodal hospital. It was cardiac surgery and it was lymphoma. So very good in cancer lymphoma, but not so good in other cancers. And Henry Kaplan had been there, and radiology was a division of a department, and the department was dominated by radiation oncology in the person of Henry Kaplan and then Mal Bagshaw. I don't know if you ever met Mal. I did meet Mal. And Henry was a larger-than-life character, and I liked that he treated me very well, but he, he was a tough taskmaster. But I figured going back to Stanford was going to be awkward. I wasn't going to see the kind of diversity. There was no mission emergency room at San Francisco General. And so, you know, UCSF had the reputation of being one of the best programs. Ab so I went to UCSF. Yeah. Now, now you, you managed to complete your radiology residency in just two years. Yeah, because they gave me credit for my interventional cardiology and radiology. And that was Alex Margulis, who was the chair. And Alex 
could convince, you know, an Eskimo to buy refrigerators. And he <laughs> talked to the board and, and they agreed. Then, then he offered me a fellowship and there was an opening at Stanford for a cardiac radiologist. And they had asked a famous radiologist at UCSF, who you know, to come and take this job. And he, he vacillated on this, for I guess, for a long time. And then eventually turned them down because it was, it was a division. But they decided that they had just a fellow named Al Makovsky, who's a brilliant inventor and terrific guy, was just being recruited to the E department. And they wanted and to do an imaging program, and they wanted somebody to build a program in radiology. So he, they wanted a cardiac radiologist, of which there weren't very many, and there were they needed somebody to do this. So I always took the jobs that nobody wanted, because it, for some there was always some reason. In this case, it was there just weren't too many people available. Yeah. So and, straight straight out of residency, you were appointed as an associate professor of radiology. I was. Yeah. yeah. And, and yeah. by courtesy electrical engineering, you were appointed yeah. director of the ra- research laboratories in the division of diagnostic radiology at Stanford. So was it really just a circumstance where, you know, they really wanted you and, you know, it seems like a pretty accelerated set yeah. of roles for you at that point. Right. So Bill Northway, who you, you probably know, was a wonderful man. And he was the division chief. And he, he, he was kind of beyond his element. He, he was a terrific pediatric radiologist, a wonderful human being. But I mean, that, but he was feeling pressured, you know, to do something. And, you know, I said, they said, you want you to start a research program. Well, I, I went up there, the research program, there was one room and it had three, two discarded x-ray machines, probably from the 1950s. You know, it, they had nothing. And not only that, radiology departments had the habit of being short-staffed. And so if you go, you wouldn't get time to do research. I said, look, if you really want me to create a research program, I have to have guaranteed time, even though I didn't have funding for it. And, you know, the only way to do that was, you know, to get an associate professorship because as an assistant professor, you have no leverage. And they agreed. I didn't, you know, I didn't hold them. To, I, I knew I had a fellowship at UCSF, and and Alex still tried to convince me to stay at UCSF. But it, you know, it worked out, and people treated me. I was afraid I'd go in there and I'd be, oh, here's the kid who, you know, missed a few steps and jumped up over. So I, I, you know. I was lucky. Yeah, but some of the jobs I took, I wasn't qualified. When I went to Minnesota, and they want me to go from chair of radiology Let, to... Let's hold off on that story. <laughs> okay, we'll get back. Let, let's wait yeah. till we get there. I, I want to ask you, as director of the research laboratories and subsequently the director of the Advanced Imaging Techniques Laboratory in the Department of Radiology, what activities did you pursue yourself and what activities did you seed and oversee? So mostly here you had Al Makovsky, who, if you sit in a conference with Al, you know, patentable ideas and brilliant ideas just come out with statements. And so he had access to, and a lot of the E PhD students didn't want to do defense projects, which was what a lot of 
EE projects were. And so here they were really, other than the integrated circuits, if they wanted to do something really exciting, was imaging. So we had access to great students. And so I had to develop, but Al didn't have at that time any grants. And I figured out how he'd get grants. And we cooked a deal with General Electric, which provided for a while, we had more equipment than the hospital did over a long-term relationship. And it was very good. And Norbert Pelk was assigned by GE to come out and, and work with us. I mean, we had you know, had wonderful people. Gary Glover was not directly involved, but, you know, really bright minds. And the students were incredible. We typically would get, of the top three students in the qualifying exam, we'd get one, if not two of them. So we had bright students. And we had then had some radiology residents, people like Fred Burbank, who went on to do develop things. So I did, I got involved in the in the dual energy project where we did projection imaging and I was actively involved in that. And then some of the, when we did uh, intravenous subtraction stuff, I was involved with that, but a lot of it was getting resources and writing grants and talking people and, uh, you know, and it literally was, there was nothing there, but bright minds. And, you know, when GE came out, when we first met GE, they said, Walt Robb, who said, so we don't work with universities, which was sort of true in those days, I guess, except they worked with UCSF. But And then you know, I said, well, look, that's fine. Why don't you send some people out or see what we're doing? And you know, they talked to, talked to Al and they talked to some of the students. They realized that there was something there that they couldn't find anywhere else. And so it, it was a wonderful relationship. Yeah, I mean, it sounds very rich. And it's interesting, you know, what I'm hearing is, is a bit of a transition from Bill Brody, the tinkerer, the engineer developing solutions to yeah. Bill Brody paving the pathway for others to do the productive yeah. work. Yeah, I mean, for one thing, the bright minds are the youngest in the room. And that's what we had. We had the best and brightest minds. Really terrific. Yeah. Now, um, how much clinical activity were you doing in those days? And, and what was the nature of your clinical work? I basically was attending in the cath lab. And I was training radiologists or cardiologists. I taught people in cardiology who went on with great inventions. Paul Yock, John Simpson, all came to the cath lab when I was attending. Because we were still doing coronary angiography. And then when angioplasty came, some of the senior people at radiology didn't want to take night call and deal with it. Mm-hmm. And so we, we didn't do angioplasty. I mean, we did some angioplasty. We did peripheral angioplasty, but coronary angioplasty where you had to have cardiopulmonary bypass and the patient sometimes croaked and you had to come in in the middle of the night. That just wasn't apparently what they wanted to do. And that was a, a very frustrating for me to see it erode. Although some of the people that came out of cardiology, the advantage the cardiologists had is they had a fellowship and the cardiology fellows spent a year or two in research. And that's when they developed all those ideas. So it was radiology's loss. So, you know, people say cardiology stole it, but the, the basic work really came out of some of these bright cardiology fellows. Yeah, so I did 
Corner angiography. Yeah, yeah. And and we did some interventional. The interventional was just starting. Paul Cipriano was there, and there was a guy who was Joe Walter, I think was his name. Yeah, yeah. In practice, yeah. Right. So they were doing more and more. And then I ended up doing less and less as the lab thing got bigger and bigger, and we brought in more grants. And stuff, sure. So. Sure. Now, after seven years on the faculty at Stanford, you took a two-year leave of absence, and I assume that was to join Resinex full-time. Right. Let, let's pause on that moment and rewind to unpack your simultaneous entrepreneurial activities following medical school graduation in 1970. And I'd like to begin with Medicis. What was Medicis, and yeah. how did you so become I, involved? I have a, a good friend, David Averin. Averin? I don't know if you know David, who he followed me at MIT as an undergraduate. He did a he he took up over my project in, for the master's thesis, and he went to Stanford Medical School a couple years after me, and then he went directly into radiology, and I went into surgery. But when he was in medical school, and I was on this fellowship doing research, we were you know we would be monitoring animals, and the EKG would go across the oscilloscope and disappear. You know, it was just, it was like a New York, New Year's Day thing in, in Times Square. And so I said to David, there's got to be a way to freeze the image now that because they were these new, I forgot what they were called, but they were new digital memories basically just coming on the market. And so we teamed up with a fellow that I, one of my classmates from MIT, who was a graduate student at, at Stanford, Wayne Hayes. And we put together the first non-fade display so you could see it coming across and it didn't, it didn't go away and you could actually freeze it. And I got a lawyer friend to join this in exchange for some stock. We started this little company. The idea was to market this non-fade display. And the lawyer you know, had, wrote a patent. But of course, we didn't know anything about marketing or anything. And we floundered. We had nobody giving us real advice. And we submitted something to Varian, and they took a year to evaluate it and then turned it down. And you know, by then, I was off doing other stuff. David was doing his residency, and Wayne Hayes was off in industry. So it didn't go anywhere. And, and then by then, several of the big monitoring companies had these devices out. So I kind of learned a few things. You got your feet wet a bit. And then in 1978, during your first year as faculty at Stanford, you began a four-year affiliation with DigiRad. Yeah. So Bob Alvarez, who was one of Al's Makovsky students, had come up with a way to do this dual energy subtraction that we were doing with with complicated digital radiography, actually do it with film in a unique way. And he got involved then with ultimately digitizing film and then developing the phosphor for it. So he developed what turned out not to be dual energy, although would could be used for it, the product that AGFA marketed as their digital radiography thing. The company didn't get any money for it to say. Bob Alvarez is a terrific guy, really smart, but he he didn't believe in marketing or sales or anything. <laughs> and the investors, we had one, a couple of investors, and, and they kind of tired of it. But years later, I was recruiting a biophysics faculty member at Hopkins 
I was on the search committee. And this guy said, oh, yeah. I said, did you do something with Digirat? I said, yeah. He said, well, we use their film, their plate technology for x-ray crystallography (laughs) again. Uh, uh, So, you know, things that go around and come around. They do go around and come around. So finally, in 1983, during your last year at Stanford, you founded Resinex or co-founded Resinex and became company president one year later. What did so, you yeah, found Resonex? So, to yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. I got to laugh because you, you So what happened is Stanford was trying to find a site to put a, a superconducting MRI in and they proposed and ultimately built this huge hole and spent over a million dollars on the site preparation. And I said, you know, why why doesn't somebody build a shielded magnet? This was long before shielded superconducting magnets. And, you know, I was used to C-arm fluoroscopy. And I said, well, why don't you make a magnet that looks like a C? Because, you know, we'd, we'd played around with C magnets. You played around with, in, you know, in grammar school, you had a magnet, a coil, and you put a nail in. It gets much stronger because it focuses. I said, well, why don't we just make a C out of iron, put wrap wire around it and plug it in and create and and let the magnet that, that the shielding be done by the iron and also the concentration of the field so that's all I, I had no preliminary you know proof of concept and there were a group of people that had invested in the first angioplasty company out of stanford with john simpson and i and, and i knew them and the investors had asked me about the company, about that company, and whether they should put a lot more money into it because they were afraid there wasn't going to be a big market for coronary angioplasty. But they had the right product. I said, you should put all the money in there you can. And they did. And it, it ended up being a home run. So in, in, in gratitude for that, they agreed to put some money in this new startup called Resinex, with, as I said, with no proof of concept. And there was a fellow that I met named Ray Williams, who was introduced to me by Charlie Struthers, Charles Struthers, the neuroradiologist who happened to be his neighbor when Charlie was a, a fellow or resident at Stanford. And Ray had started 20 companies in Silicon Valley. He wasn't a venture capitalist. He was a company starter. And I became friends with Ray. And I said, Ray, we got this idea. And we couldn't, we, we took the idea to GE and Siemens and Philips, and they all said, nah, just stick to, stick to radiology, radiography. <laughs> and we couldn't get funding. I said, well, this, and one day we were having a glass of wine with Ray, who was just a terrific guy. And Ray said, I oh, will start a company. I said, what do you mean we'll start a company? He said, yeah, I'll, I'll get the investors. I'll find the CEO. And I said, I can't leave Stanford. He said, no, you, you be the consultant. You can stay at Stanford. So there we are. Things are good. So that's what happened. Ray got the same investors who had invested in this company, Advanced Cardiovascular Systems, which ultimately became Guidant. And it was a huge, huge thing. And so they put money in to, to just do proof of concept, to, to build a magnet. But we built a full-scale magnet. It was a... I forgot how many tons of iron was gigantic, and it had all kinds of challenges, technical challenges. 
And we found we couldn't hire. And so we set out to hire physicists and engineers. And if they knew anything about MRI, they wouldn't come to the company because they said it'll never work. Because they everybody knew resistive magnets didn't work, you know. And and, and then one of the things I learned in all this is be a contrarian. Because when somebody said, "Oh, that'll never work," that's something you should, your ear should perk up. So we started on this, and we hired some really brilliant people. And they had the CEO, and it turns out the CEO was not very good. And so Ray terminated the CEO, and then they did a search, and whenever they went to anybody in the industry. The industry people said, well, I need to check with a physicist, you know, an MR physicist or engineer. And they would come back, say, it'll never work. So we couldn't get anybody. So the investors came and said, Bill, would you take a two-year leave of absence, a one-year leave of absence? See, we don't want you to stay more than one year because you don't know anything about business. I said, you're right. I don't know anything about business. They said, well, we will help you a little bit with the business stuff. And it's just one one year, Right. Great. So I went to Stanford. They gave me this leave of absence. And after one year, we got the magnet working. Big honking magnet. But it was self-shielded. It could be installed in a regular room, blah, blah, blah. It was, ended up being one of the first, probably not the first, but one of the first open MRI machines. And so what we did was then go out looking for prospects. And of course, one unit would go to Stanford and one unit was going to go to the University of Wisconsin and one to Johns Hopkins. So now we had to deliver. And so we hired more people and the investors put more money in and, you know, we're humming along. And then it, by two years, we were shipping units to three places and, uh, but didn't have FDA approval. And Stanford said, hey, Bill, your two years is always, Stanford gave me a second year, so it was two years. The investors never said, Bill, why don't you go back to Stanford? And so, Stanford said, you got to come back. I said, well, can't we work out something? And no, turns out the dean was negotiating with GE for a big package, mm. <laughs> financial package or whatever. And, you know, I think he had a conflict of interest, a serious conflict of interest, but whatever. So I said, well, if, if you can't do that, I, then I, I got I to gotta resign because if I don't, if I had to resign right now without FDA approval, you know, we won't be able to raise money and keep going. So I did. I, I gave up my tenure professorship. That's a big step. A stupid thing. It was a stupid thing to do, but it would turn out okay. You know, just turned, it was luck. Yeah, it, it did turn uh, out okay. I mean, you, you were just shy of your 40th birthday or so at this point. You're a full professor yeah, at Stanford. Early, yeah, and then- for, yeah. You know, now you're full scale an entrepreneur, you know, in a early stage company and you're you're running that company. You know, that must have been a both, a, you know, a bit of a stressful time, but a very exciting. It was. Yeah, it was a combination of adrenaline rush and tears, a lot of tears, you know, because and I learned I learned a number of things. One is people can do incredible things if you give them a schedule, and if you let them do what they want to do. If you try to dictate them, it doesn't to them. And we had a wonderful culture, but we're, we're building the second system. We had to completely redesign the system to make it a production unit installable in life. And one day, and, and so we took some risks with the design. 
and one of the risks was eddy currents. It's a long story how the how the iron is put together, and we had great debates with people who said yes, this would be fine. The other said no, and we fired the magnet up, and the magnet worked spectacularly well. But when we started making images, the images were horrible. So on a Friday afternoon. Three of the engineers came in to see me. Bill, we got a big problem. We we can't make this work, and we don't know what to do. I said, "Well, I, we have two two options. Very simple. One is it's still not five o'clock yet, so I can go out and just make an announcement, say we're closing down the company." I said, "The other option is I'll give you until Monday to come up with a solution." And Monday, the three of them came in with toothpicks, holding their eyes open. Said, "Bill, we, we I think we have a a solution." And now it took six weeks to implement the solution, but they invented on schedule. People told me, "Oh, you can't invent on schedule." People get very creative on schedule, you know, when when their life depends on it. And and they were just such great people. Are, and so. We we got it working, and then we shipped units off. And pretty soon, I'm commuting to Baltimore because the one in Baltimore was a research in cardiac imaging, which was the original focus. But before they agreed to buy the unit, they had to send somebody out to look at it. And they sent this guy who, with kind of an unpronounceable name, who I'd never heard of, <laughs> whose name was Elias Zerhuni, <laughs> and Elias came out. And the, I don't know if you have time for a, a story, but what the heck, you can cut me heck? off. Elias comes out, and he's there in the morning, and he said, "I got, I'm, I'm going to be there at eight in the morning, and then I got to catch a one o'clock plane out of SFO." And so, I get to the plant about six, and there's a bunch of sad faces from the engineers group. I said, "What's wrong?" He said, "The magnet's not working." And the machine's not working, and we don't know what's wrong with it. Now, this is a machine that had been rock solid for a year, plugged in, never turned off. And you know, I said, "Well, keep working." So Elias arrives around eight or eight thirty, and it's still not working. So I'm just giving Elias the spiel about how great Silicon Valley is and who our investors are, and. You know what the stuff, and you know Elias is, is no dummy, putting it mildly. So we have a coffee break, and I go out. He doesn't go with me. I go out, and the thing is in a thousand pieces. I mean, they had just taken this thing apart, and I go back and said, Elias, you know, it's it's ten o'clock here, but it's really one o'clock Eastern time, and there's a wonderful Chinese restaurant in Palo Alto. So why don't we go down there? We were in Sunnyvale, so we'll go down there and have lunch <laughs> at ten o'clock. <laughs> so we had a wonderful lunch, and Elias is saying, "Look, I came out here, and and the charge was I've got to do an MRI of my knee uh, and my head, you know." And so I said, "Fine, let's go back." And I get back, and I see smiles in the engineering place, and it was working. Elias went in, had his scans. Went on his way, and we got we got the order. 
So that's an amazing story. That truly is. Yeah. And I just have yeah. to recall the fact that uh, my first faculty office at Stanford was, you know, maybe, you know, 10, 15 feet away from the Resinex scanner that we had installed in the basement there of the grant yeah. building. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, it was, there, you know, luck, they say chance favors the prepared mind, but nonetheless, you know, having some good luck. Now, Resinex had some bad luck along the line when, when Medicare didn't approve cardiac reimbursement for MRI. That, that really made it a much more difficult uh, business challenge. But anyway, you know, the interesting thing is people say Silicon Valley, people will just get up and leave the engineers for, for another company and more options. The company lasted 11 years, roughly. It went through a lot of ups and downs, but it was clear after a while to most that it wasn't going to make a lot of money. They had a successful product and they sold units, and some of which I talked to somebody out of Memorial Slunk out of Hospital for Special Surgery and said, you know, yeah, we used to, we just, we just shut it off recently. But the amazing thing is nobody left. A couple people left and then they came back because they said, we love it here. And after the company closed, every Christmas season, the former employees get together and have lunch together. And one of them ended up being CEO of a very successful Wi-Fi startup that sold to Qualcomm and then ended up as the, the COO of Alphabet. And, you know, and several of our, our major engineers or execs in the semiconductor industry and several faculty members. So, you know, it, it was a wonderful, it, it, wonderful group. And they all talked about how great Resonex was. Yeah. I mean, honestly, Bill, that, that, that really is an amazing recollection. And, and you being the president and then the CEO of the company, you know, had a, you know, a, a really critical role in establishing that corporate culture. And ultimately, no doubt, it's the corporate culture that created that sense of belonging yeah. and that, yeah. you know, stickiness. To, you know, talk to us for a minute about, you know, how you view that culture creation and, you know, what you learned from Resnex that you were able to apply down the line in terms of establishing productive institutional cultures. Yeah. So cultures, so companies and universities have cultures and cultures can be good or bad. And it doesn't necessarily mean that a bad culture won't work. Harvard has a bad culture in my view for as a university place to work and research because the enemy is the person next door, you know, and so, but, but there are, you know, cigarette companies have a different culture than hospitals, for example, and some hospitals have a great culture. So I think cultures are really important. And my view is cultures get established very early in the process. You can destroy a culture. So Hewlett Packard had an incredible culture going back to David Packard and Bill Hewlett, and they did great. And then they've at one point they just got CEOs who weren't very good and they lost their they lost their way so you can destroy a culture it's very hard to take a bad culture and turn it into a good culture the thing that we did i think having a mission is a wonderful way to have a good culture and we everybody who came that we hired it didn't matter whether they were secretary or one of the top engineers 
we sent them over to Stanford or, or El Camino Hospital and had them spend a day watching MRI procedures and cath labs procedures and said, you know, this is, this, is the, this is the way it is now. And what we're trying to do is something that will be better for patients and for patient care. And people really resonated with that. And the other has to do with management style. I mean, I employed this at Hopkins and I employed it at Resonex. It's not like I'm that good. It's just my nature is this way. I watch other CEOs and other presidents who are very successful and they have a different style. I'm not authoritarian or autocrat. I just hire good people and let them have as much leash as, as, as they can. I get rid of people that aren't good. And I always said I, when I finished Hopkins, the one thing I regretted was not replacing people who were underperforming. So you have to, because underperforming people left in an organization are, are you know, poison as well. So Yeah, absolutely. But, now, now yeah. after serving as president for two years and then CEO for another year, you became you transitioned to become the chairman of the board of Resinex and moved across the country to assume the role of director and radiologist in chief of the Department of Radiology at Johns Hopkins University. What ultimately led to that pivot back away from industry and back into academia? So a couple of things happened. One is, of course, I knew that I wasn't going to be a lifetime CEO. And I realized that Resinex at some point, I, I, I didn't want to be the salesperson for, for Resonex, which is what I would be. And I didn't necessarily want them. And I, I found that being in business, it's all about making money, which is what it should be. And I wasn't as excited about fidgeting over your quarterly earnings or whatever. And so I realized that there would come a time. And so what happened is we did the deal with Hopkins and because we didn't have FDA approval, I was commuting back and forth to Hopkins to work with them on the project, which involved Elias Sirhuni and radiology and a strong element of cardiology. And along the way, they were looking for a radiology chair, and they asked if I was interested. No, I said, there's no way I can come because I committed to company. They said, well, would you just speak to the search committee? I said, yeah, as long as you know it, this is, I'm not in. So I did and talked about, because they were curious about how you establish entrepreneurship in university and deal with it, you know, and Hopkins was very, very pure in terms of having a very strong line between research and, and, and the commercial side. So I did that and they said, are you sure you were not interested? I said, no way. And so they went off and they did a search and the dean apparently didn't like or didn't find a candidate who was willing to come or whatever. And at that time, radiology had been a division of the hospital. It was a clinical service. They did a little research, but not a lot, mostly clinical research. They didn't have much in the way of facilities, but they were getting a new magnet, originally from Johnson & Johnson, and then her technic era, but then it moved to that GE. So that was it. And I'm moving along. And then Along the way, we got FDA approval. So I began recruiting a management team to come in and run Resonex. And Hopkins called, said the, the dean called me up, said, you know, Bill, would you, st- would you be interested in putting your hat in the ring? I said, yes. I, I fell in love with Hopkins. 
talk about culture. It had a, they, people work really hard, which was something I liked to do. And they were collaborative. They weren't as territori- territorial as many medical schools. And they had really good people, really good people. So I said, yes, I'm, I'm interested. And then they start along the way. Meanwhile, I went back to the dean of Stanford and said, well, uh, it looks like I may get an offer from Hopkins to go there. And I'm just wondering where radiology is, because they had talked about making radiology a department and a separate department from radiation oncology. And the dean said, yes, that's what we're doing. And I said, well, I think I'm going to have an offer from Hopkins very shortly. And I need to know, you know, where Stanford is. He said, well, you would make a great chair for Stanford, but we'll have to go through the search. Well, that was it. I mean, I know how search committees work. And search committees are the absolute worst way to pick people. (laughs) Especially university presidents, you know. I didn't really get picked by a search committee. I got picked by Michael Bloomberg and two other trustees. But and then I then I had to get vetted by a search committee. But so often search committees just make wrong decisions. And most people on search committees had never done this before. Yeah. So anyway, that was it for Stanford. And also when you go back to where you are and you you, you realize that a lot of changes have been need to be made, I would still be kind of an inside candidate. And so when Gary Glazer came, you know. He made a lot of changes, some of which were unpopular with the people who had been there for a long time, but he did create, you know, a really stellar department. So Yeah, that he did. So as your first major leadership role within academia after leading Resinex, were there any leadership challenges that surprised you within the context of academic leadership versus corporate leadership? Yeah, things move more slowly. <laughs> I always say in academia, things take place on a five-year cycle. And it, if the faculty think you're not going to be there for five years, they're going to wait you out. And they can. So you have to have an internal vision, which you may or may not sell. Sometimes you do a strategic plan. But you know, it's slower in part because you can't replace people, at least uh, at faculty and and even making changes of what their focus is within the department is, is difficult. It, it is. And, you know, people talk about doing that. It, it's really hard. <laughs> and I, I was sort of viewed as being standoffish in some way and not caring. And that's really not my personality. But, you know, it depends on, you know, I was sort of perceived as this hotshot from California. And, but we had a wonderful, we did have a wonderful department. It took a while to understand why things were done. One of the interesting things is the workload at Hopkins for radiologists was about two and a half to three times what it was at Stanford. And the people at Stanford complained about the workload and the people at Hopkins just sucked it up and did it. I mean, it's pretty amazing to see. And sometimes hard work is, is its own reward. 
So that was good. But one of the things that happened when I first got there is everybody started writing research grants. And most of the people were incapable of getting a research project. And I didn't want them writing grants. But they were assuming that's what I was going to do is make this. And we did, you know, make it a research powerhouse over time. But we didn't do it with people who were good clinicians and good doing good, you know, clinical research. We had a really strong group of people in terms of radiology and, and the, the volume and the, and the diversity of cases was just extraordinary at Hopkins. So, so what did you seek to accomplish during your years as department chair? And, and what do you see as your signature accomplishments during that time? Well, I think it was really transforming Hop, Hopkins from a clinical department to a full, full-fledged academic department. And I helped build program. For example, we had no capability within about imaging technology. And so I went to the to biomedical engineering and I went to electric and electrical and computer engineering and said, look, you know, there's a real opportunity in your field for people with imaging skills. And so I said, look, I will help front load the salary for somebody that you want to bring in. And they said, fine. They didn't have a lot of spare money, but so and I had enough. Then when I arrived, the department was losing tremendous amounts of money because the billing was horrible. It was done through a central system. And I fought really hard with the advice of people on the inside. Don't come unless you get control of the billing. And we got the ability to move it outside. And the first year we were there, we went from, you know, a $4 million loss to a $2 million profit. And then it got better and better. So I had money to invest in programs. And, you know, we brought people, Elliot McVeigh, who became ultimately was chair of biomedical engineering and Jerry Prince, who's a professor of electrical engineering, a great imaging guy. And, and they attracted a whole nother cadre of people. We even got people from the applied physics lab. And, and that's the great thing you can do at Hopkins is people don't generally ask what department you're from. It's what do you bring to the table? So we had, and Elias, of course, and Elliot Fishman had, you know, all kinds of things. So Elliot, one of the first things, Elliot dragged me out to Marin County, north of San Francisco, to see this startup company called Pixar. And Elliot had gotten them through meeting G- Steve Jobs to support his work in doing the first 3D reconstructions. It was a stellar. And similarly with Elias, I mean, they, they just, they're, they're just brilliant people in their own, in, in very different ways, but in their own, but in their own way. And I had good clinical leadership. People at Hopkins, you know, give everything for Hopkins. Mm-hmm. You know, it just, it, it is, that's the culture. So anyway, the pace, you know, in a startup, if you go away for the weekend and you come back on Monday, you can't recognize the place that, as it was on Friday. It just, the pace of just change. It has to be, you know, really fast in a startup. Yeah. After so many years as a developer of technology, how did you scratch that itch while serving as department chair? Well, I still, you know, I did it through other people mostly. Along the way, Elias and I started a company. We started the breast biopsy company, Biopsis. 
So, we, you know, you can do a little bit that in, in the university, not much, because I didn't have a lot of time. But mostly it was hiring somebody who had a brilliant idea and say, look, I'll, you know, I'll help you. I'll meet with them and do what I can. But recognize that being a department chair of a large department is, you know, you got to go to all these meetings. And, you know, I hate meetings. And, you know, but I did that. And then I got asked along the way to chair a university-wide strategic plan, which in retrospect was beautiful because when I became president, I already had a plan that was developed and vetted by across across the university. So I kind of knew what we were going to be doing. But most strategic plans are not very good and they're a waste of time because they don't align resources with the ideas. But in any event, we were able. And when I took over at Hopkins Radiology, we had no reserves. And because we controlled the billing, we were able to build up a sufficient reserve. We actually three, created three professorships for a department that had, we struggled to raise one professorship. And, you know, people give to their eyes and their and their breasts, you know, cancer. And, you know, they don't give to a lot of other things. But when we were raising a professorship for Martin Donner, the outgoing chair, it took us like three or four years to raise three million, two or three million, maybe it was two million then. Ophthalmology raised three chairs in the last, in the final three months of our kind of close out the chair. You know, It's like, it's not fair. And which prompted the former president of Hopkins to opine, it's a real shame people don't die of English. (laughs) (laughs) So so after seven years as chair, you left Johns Hopkins to become provost of the University of Minnesota. Were you consciously seeking to disrupt yourself on a seven-year cycle, or were these intervals between major changes coincidental? No, it certainly looks that way, but... What happened was the hospital, Hopkins Hospital and the, and the medical school are separate. The medical school is part of the university and the hospitals has its own corporation and its own board. And for years, there was a lot of tension, but it usually got worked out. And what happened was two things. One, HMO came in vogue. And so now the hospital and the medical school needed to speak with one voice to deal with uh, insurance companies or other healthcare organizations, health service. And the second thing is they brought in a president that they never should have brought in for the hospital CEO who was inappropriate for the job. Let me just say that. And for some reason, he viewed me as a threat. Well, people said I would would have been a great candidate to run the hospital. And I said, I, I'll talk to the search committee, but I'm not interested. And I knew they weren't going to pick anybody internal. And I didn't really want to run the hospital. Earlier, I'd been asked to put my hat in the ring to run for dean. So obviously, very early on, I had a Nobel laureate and chair of urology, famous man, came to my office and said, Bill, we want you to run for dean. Put your hat in the ring. But I said, well, I can't do that because I haven't done what I want to do in radiology and so forth. Anyway, but this guy came in running the hospital and it just was really just dismantling radiology. Some of the agreements we had about 
ultrasound and, and you know, we're just getting whittled, whittled away. And traditionally Hopkins was true to their word. If they said, this is the way it is, it would be that way. And this guy didn't give a rip. And, and there was just a lot of mashing between the dean and the CEO. The trustees met, said, oh, we have a solution for this. We're going to create an office of the CEO, and the, D the CEO and the dean will have the same office suite. Why are you laughing, Kimosabi? Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah, it, that didn't work. And I left because I, I said they're going to dismantle radiology. So when I leave, they're going to have to appoint somebody. And we had you know, three or four really good people in the department who are capable of taking over and they'll have to negotiate with them. And my son was very unhappy with his school. He really wanted to go into a boarding school or something. So one day somebody, this chair of surgery said, hey, Bill, I understand you're finalist for the dean search at USC. I said, well, that's news to me because they never asked me. <laughs> and so I went out to USC and I said, no, I'm not interested. And then UCLA called and uh, basically verbally offered me the job of head of UCLA, but they had promised that the president was going to call the chancellor would put the hospital and the medical school together under the new, the new head rather than just the head of the medical school. And when I met with him, he reneged. He said, oh, no, no, we're not really going to do that. And I said, okay. And, and I didn't really like L.A. And so that was kind of it. And then I got this call one day from Minnesota. And what attracted me is that they had a huge number of serious problems, which I like. I, I like to find jobs that nobody else wants. And they had a surgeon who was making a drug for transplant rejection, and he was manufacturing it and sending it all over the world and making a profit for surgery. But he didn't have FDA approval to do that. He had FDA approval to do a research study. And so what I discovered when I got there is the hospital, every other bed of the hospital was empty because the HMOs had gone in. And so the hospital was going bankrupt. And they had a muckraking press that printed horrible articles about the university medical school and, and a micromanaging legislature and a, a difficult board of regents for the university. For those listeners who are not familiar with the role of provost, you know, perhaps share the, the scope of responsibility and ultimately you know, what it was that you went there to achieve. Yeah. For reasons that are a little bit crazy, but not. So the, what happened is when this thing hit with John Najarian, who was the surgeon, who is a very interesting character in his life. He was one of the last people to play in the Rose Bowl team for Berkeley. And he played for the Chicago Bears for a year or so. Bigger than life, transplant surgeon, probably the most beloved person in the state of Minnesota because he would go on with these kids he did transplants. So, yeah, you know, he was a character. Anyway, what happened is when this thing hit the chair of the Board of Regents, I mean, there's a lot more to the story, which I can't tell on camera. The chair of the Board of Regents panicked, in my view, and the entire board panicked. 
and they fired everybody. They fired the dean and they fired the, there was a VP for health affairs and wiped it clean. They had an interim dean and a really terrific guy, neurosurgeon, chair. And they went out recruiting ahead. And rather than call him a senior vice president for health sciences, which would be usual, they decided that they had some reasons to split because you've got a provost and the provost deals. It's always a little awkward when you have a provost and you have a head of all the health sciences who deals with the academic stuff. So they split the academic piece as well. But I was basically senior vice president for health. I had two medical schools, pharmacy, nursing, veterinary science, dentistry, public health, mortuary sciences. I don't know, you know, any of the allied health things, huge thing. Some of the parts were really good. Pharmacy was good. Dentistry was good. Public health was good. Medicine was not as good as it used to be. In, in the 50s and 60s, Minnesota was one of the top, probably five medical schools. And they got sort of left behind a bit. Under investment by the university, probably, and some decisions. And, and it's, it's a difficult environment. I, I didn't realize how hard, especially a land-grant university, to get anything done is, is I mean, it's just, it, it's really difficult because you have all these constituents who, who think this, and then you have this press that does it, and you have everything's public. So anyway, they did a search, and there's a, they brought a guy in named Winston Wallen. It's not a name you would know, but Win Wallen was a Minnesotan, big, tall, good-looking guy who had been the CEO of Medtronic and taken over Medtronic when they were, had kind of lost their way and he revitalized them and then retired, was the chair of the board and then eventually retired. And they asked Wynn if he would come in and run the health system. And he said, no, I can't do that, but I'll help you find somebody. So as a public citizen, he was there. And, you know, I was very skeptical that this was going to work out. There were just too many landmines. But I said, when if you'll help mentor me and deal with this, I'd be willing to consider this. And so we go through the search process. And one of the part of the search process, you have to speak before a public forum, semi-public forum of people from the constituents, right? And one of the persons says, hey, Dr. Brody, you know, I'm looking at your background. What makes you think you can do this job? <laughs> I said, look, if you can find somebody who has full qualifications, go out and hire them. But, you know, the, the difficulty is this is not desirable. You've got a muckraking press. You, you're, everything is public. You've got a mic, you know, blah, blah, blah. And so, you know, I'm willing to take a risk, but it's a big risk. And so kind of they picked me. And when Wallen was fabulous, he, he really helped me with a few things, including one interesting story at some point. But I went there and I realized that the problems were even deeper than, than I thought. But, you know, we just tackled them one at a time. And I thought I, I and I was in the newspaper all the time, not necessarily kindly. And my son asked who, who went there as a freshman and he loved Minnesota. He hated Baltimore. He didn't like the school. He loved Minnesota, found a place that was just right for him. He was a good athlete, but not a Division I athlete. And he went to a school that was really high in academics. 
And at one point he asked his mom, you know, how long are we going to stay here? And, and mom said, well, we'll be, we'll make sure you graduate from high school in Minnesota, which was right, but I didn't stay there, you know. I, and I was just thought I'd be there for a while and then I'd either get, you know, pilloried in some scandal that w wasn't mine but was occurring or, you know, I'd go back to California and retire or do something different. But I love Minnesota. People are wonderful. And it was a very enjoyable place to be. And so, you know, we, we, we worked on things one at a time. And what happened is the hospital turned out to be, I, I knew that the, the thing against Nigerian, that the first thing they were going to do when it goes to court is they're going to call the FDA and ask the FDA, when did you know about this? And they said, 10 years ago. So why didn't you do something? And I go, blah, 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 you know? But the FDA wouldn't testify before then. They couldn't say anything publicly but until they were subpoenaed. And that's what ultimately happened long after I left. Najarin was acquitted on everything, including income tax evasion, which he admitted. <laughs> so he, well, he was a popular person. You know, that, that, that's another story how that works. But anyway, we're, but the, the, the hospital thing was horrible. I went back to the state and I said, look, you, you guys created this situation where there are these three networks, these all-powerful networks, and we're not in them. And you've got to find a solution. And they said, we can't find a solution. So we ended up merging the university with the Fairview Health System, which saved the university hospital. It, it still is complained today after many, many years, 20 years they're complaining about. But it did save them. But, you know, in the process, we had to deal with competing unions and merging competing unions in a, a right to, you know, a state like Minnesota is is really tough. Yeah, um, yeah. Bill, Bill, I can't help yeah. reflect on you know sort of you know where we've been through these stages of your journey from you know being an engineer developing you know new solutions, cutting edge, you know, to realizing your love of radiology and you know contributing to building a strong research enterprise at Johns Hopkins, and now. You've pivoted completely from radiology, and you've taken on a very high-risk circumstance yeah. for all the reasons that you've described. You know, what was it inside of you that said, time to stop doing radiology, to move from all of those things that, you know, I have enjoyed and loved, and to just embrace the chaos, which is essentially what it sounds yeah. like you were doing. Right. I'm a, I'm a, what I say, a contrarian curmudgeon. I like things that are difficult and need a good solution. I mean, I don't just do it. And, and I wouldn't do anything. I mean, I thought there was a solution for Minnesota. And maybe there would have been if I stayed there. Well, there would have been because it's not going away. Resonex was tougher because there was no fallback. Yeah, I, yeah, I mean, I'm sure I could get a job reading you know, film somewhere or go, you know, or get an academic job, maybe. But I love the challenge. I guess it's 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 not that I want to do stupid things or, or just challenge. I mean, I like to do things where I think I can make a difference. I guess I think one of the elements of happiness is to be able to say I made a difference, and not and it's fleeting. So what really provides me with pleasure is all the people that I've mentored. 
in the university was the students. And, and one of the things I missed going to the Salk Institute is we had graduate students only, and the graduate students were working in labs, so you never see them, and there weren't that many of them. And I missed the give and take and the opportunity to, you know, I taught an undergraduate course at Hopkins, which I still teach, just because I wanted to be close to them. I've mentored the current governor of Maryland is one of my mentees. A fellow who was my dean of arts and sciences went on. He just retired as the CEO of the New York Metropolitan Museum of Art. I've had several CEOs of startups. You know, I, I, I don't do it as a job. I just, if I find somebody that wants to talk to me, I talk to him and sometimes it develops into a, a relationship. And to me, that's one thing that that's better than all the plaques, certificates, you know, the National Academies, the major job of the National Academies is to elect other members. I just, you know, I have to say it's a, it, they do do some important things, but it, it spend a lot of time electing members and how important that is and how unimportant it is. You know, it, what difference does it make if, you know, I'm that, you know, in this National Academy or I got that award. When I downsized from the big house, had all these certificates that were hanging on the wall or something, and I didn't have room for them. And I asked my kids if they wanted them, and they said, Dad, go on. You know, what do you mean? I threw them away. I guess I should have saved them for Hopkins archives or something, but I just, you know, it, it, but the relationships that I had that people who have just, you know, been from graduate students to people in the community, that allows you to make a difference. So I was, was mentored. I had a number of mentors, all of whom were interesting. And one of them was the fellow named Saul Linwitz, who's not a household name. Saul went to Hamilton College, couldn't decide whether to become a concert violinist, a rabbi, or a lawyer. And eventually he became a lawyer and finished law school, had all these lucrative offers to go to Manhattan, and he turned them all down. Went back to his hometown of Rochester, New York. Set up a shingle, because he was a decade or more older than I was, probably two. And he had a neighbor who asked him to help him negotiate to get the rights for a patent. And it turns out it was the xerography patent. And his neighbor had started his company, which was the Haloid Corp, and then it eventually became Xerox. And Saul was the CEO of Xerox. After that, he retired at a young age and worked for Lyndon Johnson. He was ambassador to the Organization of American States. He, ne he negotiated the return of the Panama Canal. For Jimmy Carter, he negotiated the first Middle East peace accord with Begin and Sadat and so forth. He died, and at his, at his funeral, there were a few people asked to speak. I was one of them, followed by his daughter, who was probably in her early 40s then, maybe. And we all talked about our relationship with Saul and what a wonderful mentor. One of them was Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer. One of them was one of a famous newscaster and me. But his daughter gave the most meaningful thing. She went to her dad and said, Dad, you know, when she was like in her teens or early 20s, how can I ever measure up to all the things that you've done? And she cited these things I just said. And, and he said, look, all of those things are fleeting. 
we don't know whether Xerox will survive. We don't know whether the Middle East Peace Accord will survive. And so what I find in life gives me pleasure is every day I find three things to do for three different people. It could be a phone call for somebody who's had some business problems. It could be somebody who's lost a spouse, somebody who has cancer. He said, those are the things that are meaningful and make a difference. And as I got older, I realized how wise Saul Winowitz was. You know, it just everything else kind of comes and goes. And Anyway, it's a beautiful you know, story and it's a, it's a very meaningful observation. And, you know, it, it's 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 clear, you know, through all of these diverse experiences that you've really helped to uncover your North Star and, the, you know, what, what you know, what, what yeah. propels you forward. And, you know, it helps to contextualize a lot of the decisions and the directions that you've taken. Yeah, helping people is a great, a great thing if you have the opportunity so after two years as provost in Minnesota, you broke the seven-year cycle to return to Hopkins as president of the university, a position yeah. that you held for 13 years, longer than any other, and certainly a dizzying ascent to that point. Help us understand from your perspective and from Johns Hopkins' perspective why your service as president of the university was the right move in 1996. So there were two things. One is they offered the job to somebody else who was highly qualified, and he said he was coming. And then he was at the University of Florida. He had formerly been the provost at Hopkins, a guy I really liked. And he said he was going to come. And then he, and after this, that long search process, and he, they, he gets on the news and says he's staying in Florida, University of Florida. He was the president of University of Florida. So then there were these issues between medicine and between the hospital and the medical school. And the, the trustees had proposed a solution of putting everything together, but they figured maybe somebody with a medical background would be useful. And somebody suggested my name. So they came out and talked to me about being president of Hopkins. And would you be interested? I said, no, hell no, I'm not interested. And they said, why not? And I said, well, because the medical school and the hospital are at war with one another. It's dysfunctional. Oh, no, we've solved that problem, you know, with this. Well, so that was it. They went away. And then a few weeks to months later, the clinical chairs at Hopkins all got together and said, we're all going to resign if you don't fix this problem. It's completely dysfunctional. So then they went through a process that took them a number of months, and they did a virtual merger between the hospital and the medical school and created a position of a dean CEO, which other places call maybe a senior vice president for health sciences. And then they came back after a while. And so I went because I thought, well, now has then they created a whole new structure. And I had done this strategic plan for the university, which looked at really two major thrusts, not surprising. One is interdisciplinary research. Hopkins is the largest research university in terms of funded, government-funded grants. A big chunk is the applied physics lab in addition to medicine and public health. But there was a lot more room for collaboration. There was no public health major. There were student, you know, they were, there just weren't, they were silos. And the other was to improve the undergrad, the quality of the undergraduate education. 
So I came with us, and Mike Bloomberg was the chair, incoming chair of the board, whom I didn't know, but I respected a lot, and I ended up working with him before he was mayor, and, you know, he was just extraordinary. I mentioned people to you before we started that people have a, have a buying motive when they give money. They have a reason. And Mike's motive was, okay, Bill, tell me what's the most important thing for the university. And I said, well, we need to do this or this or this. He said, well, this, this is important to me, but that's not. But since you say it's important, I will give to that as well. And we proposed a 20-year master plan for the, the Homewood campus, where I don't know that you've been on the Homewood campus, but it's where arts and sciences and engineering. It was a beautiful campus designed with landscape by Fred Le- Frederick Law Olmsted in the last century. But in the process, they had put asphalt roads and cars, and it was, it was horrible. Nobody walked on campus. Nobody biked on campus. So we did this 20-year plan, and the first part was to get rid of the asphalt and the cars and put in brick walkways and marble, lined with marble siding. And Mike Bloomberg said, well, I'll kickstart that. And so we got it started, and then everybody saw what we were doing, and we were able to raise enough money. And we did much of that master plan in about five years. And it completely transformed. the. I, I believe that in order for Hopkins to be a world-class university, it wasn't sufficient to be world-class in research. And in fact, if you want to attract the best graduate students, you need to attract the best undergraduates. So you set the bar the threshold for who you're going to recruit. And so we really changed Hopkins as a place, an attractive place for undergraduates, enlarging it, creating a recreation center and a, you know, a variety of new buildings and new programs and, and a public health major, which became probably the second largest major on campus after biomedical engineering. And so Bridging that we create a program with the Peabody Music Conservatory so students could take music classes and some do dual degree programs. So, you know, it had a great footprint. It just wasn't being utilized. So, so it was a great opportunity. From electrical engineering, medicine, <laughs> technology development, new company formation, and corporate to academic leadership, how did you combine, leverage, synergize your diverse experiences and expertise within your role as university president? That sounds like I'm so great. I don't want to, you know, I succeeded. People said, hey, Bill, you had a great run. I said, I know Mike Bloomberg was the chair. Although at that time he wasn't giving billions of dollars, but he was giving millions of dollars. And so that was one thing. But, you know, you hire good people who teach you. And there were many times where I disagreed with my staff, but, you know, in the end, most of the time they were right. You know, when Larry Summers stepped down from the presidency of Harvard, he said, everybody was out to get me. And I said, all the people that worked for me were trying to make me look good. And they did. And, you know, even faculty would open doors for me, for the president, come on. I I just, you know, it was a combination of the culture of Hopkins and just we put together a really good team and a lot of things I didn't know about. I didn't know a lot about bond financing and all that, but I hired a really good CFO and, 
you know, we got rid of some people who were who are people who like to hide the hide the numbers rather than share them. And I believe we just share them. You know, here's the numbers. Here we are, where we are. Here's what we're doing. And, and you know, people people like that. And we just didn't get a lot of. You know, I mean, faculty are faculty. So, in particular, arts and sciences, and the basic scientists are more persnickety everywhere. But at, at Hopkins, it was it, it was easy, and we didn't have a muckraking press. Baltimore Sun loved us, and every time they wrote a letter, a article that was just a little bad, the provost would come running in and screaming. The per PR person, remember, oh, I said, "Look, you haven't dealt with the Minneapolis Star Tribune." If you really want to know, you know, pain, that's pain, you know. So I was blessed and it was a good time for me. Yeah, it sounds like you had a phenomenal culture and built a terrific team. What would you say you liked most about your time as university president? Students, interacting with students was great. And, you know, opportunity to look, you know, I love international relations. I didn't know much about it. I got involved with China. I got with, you know, we have a campus in Hopkins has a campus in Bologna, Italy. And so I got to, you know, got to travel and learn a lot more about the world. And, you know, and, and Applied Physics Lab does a lot of work for the Department of Defense and NASA. And, you know, I was, you know, the, the days were wearing. It was hard and a lot of dinners and uh, a lot of fundraising. But fundraising was mostly with really smart accomplished people and we had a good product to sell so and I had great staff again it would you know without good staff you're just running around trying to that was hard the hardest part of Minnesota was I mean partly the governance of the state university where everything is open but you know it's harder to get really good people and and to get rid of people who are not really good so I always said that I did and maybe I said this before one of the things I regretted when I stepped down as president, I just said, I listed the 10 things I learned. And one of the things I learned is I waited too long to replace people who weren't functioning as high, highly as they should. You know, and we just, we tend to just sidestep a problem. It's easier to sidestep a problem. But one person who's not good infects a bunch of others working around them. And at least in the university and outside of California, have an opportunity to change people. Uh, in California, you don't. <laughs> it's an important, important lesson to, to pass yeah. on. To, to yeah. what extent did you need to balance your move fast entrepreneurial instincts within the context of being a highly scrutinized university yeah. president? Yeah, well, you, you know, you move slowly. <laughs> It's saying, you know, the university president's like a caretaker at the cemetery. He's got a lot of people under him, but nobody listens. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and so it, it, it's, it's frustrating. But that's one of the reasons, like, I like to work with small companies is I don't want to go back and work for one. It's, it's, it's really tough. It's, it's worse than being a cardiac surgeon, surgery resident. Because in a small company, you're always trying to make payroll. You have no fail-safe exit. In the university, you know, you, Hopkins has been around more than 100 years. It'll probably be okay in another 100 years. But, you know, so you just have to, you have to match your temperament to, to where you're going. I thought we moved really fast. Like the, the, 
20-year uh, strategic plan. I mean, we, we thought it really was a 20-year plan. And it ended up being much, you know, and partly because we had, had really supportive people who wanted to put money into it. And I had, you know, I just had great staff. Yeah. Um, so. Any particular yeah. dragons that you had to slay as president? Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, when we first, the arts and sciences had the faculty committee that was mostly retired and disgruntled people, which is true everywhere. It was really true at Minnesota. But, you know, at Hopkins, they tried to immediately give the provost a vote of no confidence. This is a you know, spectacular guy who became president of George Washington University. He's a really smart guy. But it was mostly the disgruntled faculty who I think wanted to go after me, but realized they didn't have the political capital to do it. So, And typical faculty meeting, there'd be 10 faculty there out of 200, you know, so but then when the vote came, of course, it went resoundingly for the, for the provost because they convinced all the active faculty to, to, to get out of their offices and come over and vote. So we had that. We had issues with, in Baltimore with race relations, living wage. group of students chained themselves into the administrative building uh, stairway, protesting the living wage, even though we were paying a living wage. Uh, they, they still came after us. You know, the protests always occur at universities because they get publicity. And the trustees, one of the trustees said, you know, call the police, Bill. Why don't you get the police and get them out of there? And fortunately, my provost, who had come from Berkeley, who had handled a lot of the demonstrations, said, no, just leave them alone. And in another week, it's, it's a spring break. And I guarantee you they're not going to want to be chained up <laughs> in the administration building. And spring break, and sure enough, that's what happened. We had two students who were killed, both off campus, and both were preventable things. I mean, it was behavioral. One not on the part of the student, but of the student's roommate, and the other students. A lot of drinking was oftentimes the problems, and very, but very sad. We had a student die of meningitis, and I had to go to the funeral and. Long Island. And, I mean, it's just, you know, and I went to the parents of this one Vietnamese student who died and they were, the father had been a general in Vietnam and they came over as boat people and he, the father and the mother were working on a factory assembly line in suburban Washington in a small bungalow house. And here was this girl who was a biomedical engineer, a toughest major, you know, Phi Beta Kappa, and she was killed. You know, I went, and I'll still remember her name and, and meeting her parents. I mean, and I had no gray hair before that. I had a flock of, of black hair or dark hair, not black brown. And then all of a sudden my hair turned. It just, it's just amazing. It's an awesome so that was one of the things that kind of convinced me that after 10 years, you know, there's always a crisis, and so I think I had seen enough crises. That, yeah, it's an awesome responsibility. Yeah. When you look back, what do you view as your signature accomplishments as president of Hopkins? Surviving. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, you know, I think, you know, I always went by the motto, make every campsite a better place when you leave it. 
than when you came. And I think I think I more or less did that. We developed a really good governance model through the help of the trustees for medicine. And, you know, we rebuilt the hospital that nobody wanted to touch because it was impossible to figure out how to do it. And we came up with a solution because there was no place to build in situ. And a thing came up that seemed out of left field. And I said, well, I think if we buy this, we can move the parking lot there and we could, you know, and, and so that allows us to build the hospital, which, which was sorely in need of building. And, you know, we, we, did, we got a lot of things done. It was, it was pretty amazing, given, given that, you know, you sit, we all think of them as encrusted places. So Hopkins is more entrepreneurial because it doesn't have a major endowment. And if you have too large of an endowment, you're, you have an entitlement that comes with, you know, and that's one of the problems that Larry Summers had at, at Harvard is, there was so much endowment, but it was all stuck in the various, you know, the, the divinity school had lots of endowment and he needed money to, to build more engineering and, and technology. It, it can't move the money. After 13 years, almost two consecutive seven-year cycles, you left Baltimore and returned to California, this time as president yeah. of the Salk Institute for Biological yeah. Studies in La Jolla. What inspired that change? Well, my wife at the time really wanted to go back to California. I thought it would be a great thing to do, and you know, and and certainly it was a lot less intensive. I I didn't get the same gratification from doing it, in part because it's fifty of the world's best biomedical scientists, but they're in their lab or they're in meetings, going to meetings. They're not, you know, they rarely come to faculty meetings. And the graduate students were all from UCSD, but again, they're all spending time in the lab. So it's not like you walk around and talk to students or even teach a course to students, which I really enjoyed when I was at Hopkins. So it was good. We, then they needed a lot of money. They were way short of endowment. And so we did the first campaign ever and raised triple the endowment and raised 20 endowed professorships and and it's hard to raise money for basic science. People, again, if you're doing cancer, they, you can get funded. If you're doing fundamental work on mitochondria, it's probably not. It's much harder to connect that. Yeah. With just 50 faculty members institute-wide, how does Salk re-energize and refresh its scientific direction and maintain its leading edge in pursuit yeah. of its mission? Well, that was one of the issues. I didn't think we were recruiting the, the best people. I mean, we had good people. The senior faculty were really great, but the senior faculty were aging and retiring. And they had gone through financial crisis for a while. So they had no mid-career faculty to speak of. And so, and it's hard to recruit mid-career faculty because they're, you know, if you're at University of Arizona, you're at Stanford or you're Texas, you've got not only the place, but you've got all your lab and your grad students, but your kids are in school. And, you know, it, it's hard to pick up and move. Now, they, we started on that. We didn't make much progress when I was there, but they have now. And, and that really helps a lot because you need really good people at the senior level to pick the junior people. And so I think they're doing much, much better, but they've, you know, they've gone through, they had gone through more presidents in 10 years than Hopkins did in a hundred years. 
Wow. Yeah, because they had, you know, rotating door of presidents and it was it's a complicated place in part due to Jonas Salk's personality in order to recruit people who had to give the faculty so much autonomy in controlling the institute that it, it was hard for people to get things done and we we kind of changed the the tenor of governance and and they hadn't done fundraising and so we we had a really good head of development and and made major improvements there. Were those those impediments that you described in governance more cultural or were they actually formalized in terms of some charter that... Well, originally there was a charter, but it was really cultural. It was cultural. They were all used to making the decisions and partly because they didn't trust the president, you know, or the president was some imperial wizard who went somewhere. They had a couple of Nobel laureates. One, I think, it's one or two, well, two as president, but Nobel laureates not, are not necessarily the ones to lead an institute and do a lot of fundraising and all the other stuff that it takes. So how did you, you know, gain, gain their trust and what approach did you take <laughs> to being more effective as the prior presidents that you were describing? I don't know that I gained their trust. I knew more about the job than anybody that they had before me and anybody that they had subsequently until recently, they always want somebody with a name or they wanted somebody, you know, with something. And, and it, you know, it takes a lot of running off small institution is harder than running a big institution, you know, because you have to be the paper hanger and you have to clean the toilets and, <laughs> you know, and then you have to give the speeches and do all that. So, it, it, you know, you don't have the same. The Hopkins, our development staff was 280 people. It's probably 400 or now it's an army of people so you know it, it's a lot easier to do development we were blessed with a woman who was just a stellar fundraiser but it is what it is in southern california this is different from northern california as i found out the salk institute has the world's most beautiful building my office looked out over the pacific ocean this is it's a louis Kahn building i don't know if you've ever seen it but I have yeah but when I arrived, the building was 50 years old. I said, how's the building? They said it was fine. Well, it turns out all of the HVAC, the chillers, everything was 50 years old. And, and the boilers were rusting out. And we had two electrical feeds, but one of them, the switch was frozen. So we had to do a bond issue in 2009 and 10, you know, at the worst time of the, to raise money to replace all the HVAC. And it's hard to get somebody to put their, a donor to put their name on the boiler, you know. But Erwin Jacobs, who was the chairman, stepped up and helped too. So we did that. And then I said, well, what about, it's a teak. It's a concrete and teak building. And the teak was discolored. I said, well, what's wrong with the teak? They said, oh, no, that's just supposed to weather that way. I said, well, I don't really think so. Anyway, so after a few years, we started looking at that. And we got some help from the, the Getty museum which has a architectural reconstruction group to come in and you know the teak was not only rotting but it was structurally important and one of one of the windows fell out on the second floor could have killed somebody so we started that that the problem it was burmese teak and you can't import burmese teak and so we were between the historical preservationists it's not a historical building but it's considered a historic landmark. 
And so they wanted Burmese teak, and somebody else said, you know, you could just put plywood up. Not quite, but and and that was the so the, I started that when I was there. They actually have finished it now, replacing all of the teak, which was a big deal. But it's a beautiful building. Yeah, were, were they able to actually get the Burmese, inspiration? Were they able to get the Burmese teak in the end? I don't know where they got it. I didn't. I did not want to know. And that's why I went to the Getty, because Getty figured out that there were certain substitutes we could use. And there are probably others that maybe we couldn't. Yeah. yeah. Cloned yeah, in the so. lab, maybe. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a, it, it is an amazing building. Yeah. It just, uh, yeah. But, but, and it's, you know, in much better shape now yeah. than it was. That's yeah. great. Yeah. It is oh. a beautiful place and, and quite a contrast, as you described, to yeah. leading Hopkins. So it, it seems that you were back to your subconscious seven-year cycle, because after seven years at Salk, you pivoted yeah. again, this time to the startup world where you became executive chair at Mesa Biotech. Tell us about Mesa Biotech and what compelled yeah. you to invest your efforts with them. Yeah. So as I retired, I, I had a friend who was a former Stanford pr- trustee and a lawyer who called me up and said, Bill, there's this company in San Diego that has this incredible test for infectious disease, and but they can't raise money, would you help them? So I thought this would be easy. It was technology developed at Los Alamos during the first SARS epidemic to try to have something that military could take in the battlefield and search for pathogens, not only SARS, Ebola, and up to 10 or 11 pathogens, with a portable device with a relatively short time to the test and accurate. And this group spent years and then eventually spun out of developing a portable PCR test, which a number of people who looked at this said was impossible to do. I think now there are people copying because they figured out how it was done. I had nothing to do with the technology. It was pretty much there. But we had a CEO as a scientist from Beijing and done her PhD at USC. And then we had a a chief scientist out of Colorado. They were both very smart, but she had no business experience, nor did he. And they made a lot of mistakes. And I walked in thinking it would be easy to raise money for a medical device company. And I called up all my former friends, I mean, friends from, you know, when I was active at Resinex and beyond. And they all said, no, we don't do medical devices because the FDA is unpredictable and reimbursement's unpredictable. And I said, well, we've got this device. We have tests for flu that's already FDA approved and we have reimbursement. Ah, no, it's just, and they were right. It was, it's not a great market because they had all these strip tests out there, which weren't very accurate, but people could charge pretty much the same thing with a strip test is getting this portable PCR test. But the PCR test was remarkable. I mean, it was, this portable thing was as good as these hundred, $200,000 machines. And so we had tests for flu, RSV, and strep. I said, why RSV? I haven't seen a case of RSV since medical school. But, you know, and so we went out and we couldn't raise any money. We ended up raising money in China, which turned out to be very problematic and where truth and is not quite on the front you know the same financial standards and the same disclosures and everything and so we ended up in battle with our investors and 
we were always uh, a few, you know, very short of money. But we had these three products, and we were trying to get in the marketplace, and but the marketplace was crowded, and it's hard to break in, even if you have a better test. And one of our investors was supposed to give us another $10 million in, in April of 2020, and we were pretty sure they weren't going to give us the money. So in February, we were debating about whether to put the company into bankruptcy. And we actually didn't have enough money to put it into bankruptcy that would save the technology. It's amazing. You have to have money to go through a protective bankruptcy thing. So I figured we're, you know, we're just walking into a brick wall and that's going to be it. And I picked up the New York Times in, I can't remember, it was early, late February, early March. I read about this new virus, SARS. So I called the chief scientist. I said, Bruce, can you do this? Oh yeah, we did SARS in 2006. But CDC held on to the RNA code sequence. So we had to wait. But when they released it, we quickly had a test. Went to FDA. They said, yeah, you've got to do whole five, whole clinical trial 510K. We said, wait a minute, there's a, this pandemic going on. I don't know. And then each week they relaxed the restrictions. And then finally, when emergency approval, we got there. And then we tried to make them. And we couldn't make very many of them. Fortunately, I got the test to Hopkins. And they tried it out, and they said, this is a great test. And they said they would like to use it in labor and delivery and ER, where they needed a high-performing test that was a little more more expensive, but would give them 30-minute results. And so we limped along, and then finally, when it looked like you know, we were going to have a product, I talked to the CEO and said, look, either I'm going to be the CEO take over, which I certainly did not want to do, or you agree with me that we'll go and search for a CEO. And she did, because previously she was not uh, supportive. But so I got found, just by luck, found a guy in the three, within a few weeks in, in San Diego who had spent his whole career in testing and had just closed down a previous company. And he was phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal. And he took that company from zero to error. And you know, for a long time, we had skeptics. You know, it's not as good. Or some people, I sent it to some universities, they refused to even test it to see if it's any good. And then one day I got a call from somebody at, at Emory, who you know, who, who called me up, who previously said our ID people didn't want it, said, oh, we just did this major test for NIH or CDC of tests, and you have a great test, and we're wondering if we can get some. And then one day, somebody walked in from the NBA, said, we need a high-performance test that can be used, you know, on-site for our high-value assets. In the bubble. And we did a 900-person control clinical trial, and your test was the best of any. And so all of us, and we had decided not to sell one-on-one to doctors. We had a distributor for that. We just sold the health systems and then NBA and then CVS bottom and LabCorp bottom. And the thing just took off. And then a year later, the company got acquired by Thermo Fisher. So it's amazing. Um, yeah. Yeah. Ama- amazing story. But it's luck. It was luck. You know, I always say luck. Many things happen because of bad luck. And people say it was bad luck. But when it's good luck, they don't say, oh, we had good luck. But in luck, this case, luck favors you, the prepared. That's right. Louis Pasteur, the prepared mind. Yes. So, 
anyway, but that was a struggle because I was in Baltimore and they were in San Diego and we weren't going to, I wasn't going to travel. And I had just gotten remarried and we had phone calls every day. And because I'm in Baltimore, the phone calls started at dinner and went through the evening. And this was causing some domestic strife, as you can imagine. And we had shouting matches. And I mean, it was, it was, it was really hard, but it, it was really worthwhile. Yeah. It was worthwhile. Yeah. I mean, those uh, were such crazy times early in the pandemic. And to, yeah. you know, to think amongst all these things that you've been you know, describing in your career that you, know, you found yourself at the center of a company that was producing the test, you know, that yeah. essentially enabled rapid testing in COVID-19 and you know, enabled you know, the NBA playoffs to resume in the bubble and all of these sorts of things. Yeah. It's truly remarkable. And then the, you know, that the company was you know, on the brink of bankruptcy and then was able to exit, uh, you know, very successfully. Yeah. One, one of the investors we talked to brought a biotech executive in to look at our technology. And the biotech guy said, you know, I used to work for a company called Cetus. It was in near Berkeley, a pharma. He said, and I had a guy working for me named Mullis. And Mullis is the one who invented PCR and won the Nobel Prize. And he said, we tried for a long time to make a rapid PCR test and we couldn't do it. What makes you think you can do it? And I'm holding the test here and the port that's our chief science officer just got really red and angry because I said, all you got to do is send this to a lab and have them test it and you'll see if it works or not. They wouldn't do it. You know, somebody said when there's a revolutionary event of some sort, I'm not saying this was revolutionary, but in, in that guy's mind it was, good ideas are accepted one death at a time. You know, all the experts have to die out. Yeah. <laughs> So, so most recently, you've joined the team at a Bridge AI as an advisor. Yeah. Tell us a bit about the solution that Bridge AI is developing, and and how you see AI bringing value in yeah. the short run. Well, let me spark, speak yeah. more generally. I think I was a naysayer of AI, having you know grown up and seeing all the hype that occurred and never and it never happened, and I was really skeptical. And then when Chat. GPT arrived, I mean, it, it just hit me like a lightning bolt. And I still didn't believe it, so I signed up for one of these accounts and actually paying $20 a month for it and tried it. And it, it is absolutely phenomenal. It's also dangerous because it hallucinates. I had to do my bio, and it gave me uh, certain jobs I never had and said I had uh, honorary degrees from Oxford and, came, and University of Edinburgh which I've never set foot in either. So, you know, you have to be really careful. But think about radiology or medicine. So you can sit there and as a doc, and the speech to text has gotten so good, you can sit there with a pay. So the problem with Epic and medicine is there's no medical record. There's a lot of data. It's, it's a garbage pit. They put everything in there and they ship so with, with this, you can sit there with a patient while the patient's there and you say, okay, Jeff, your, your A1C is a little high. I think we're going to need to put you on metformin and blah, blah, blah. And then when you're done, it prints out the entire history of the physical illness for the medical record. And it gives a fourth grade version, 
fourth grade English version for you, the patient. It also gives you information on metformin and it will send, could send, I mean, I'm thinking what's possible in the future, send a script to the pharmacy. And radiology, you can say, okay, here's a patient, I'm just picking up a lung nodule. But this patient is, has cancer and has been scanned for, you know, 15 years. Are you going to go through all 15 years, read the report? No, you just go and say, okay, scan the reports and find when the first incidence of a reported nodule was there. You know, yeah. so I think for, you know, people say replace doctors. We're not going to replace doctors. We're going to make us more efficient. And we're either, you know, the, the we're going to, the, the, the people who are going to win are the doctors with AI, not the doctors versus AI. Right, right, right. And, and, I mean, and, yeah. you know, there's, there's so many dependencies. I mean, right now we have such disparate systems and, you know, the, the, the reports that were acquired from the CT scan across town are not in the system. You can't, you can't even get them. Right. Yeah, you can't so, even get yeah, them. We clearly have a lot of things to solve. And I, I see that you're also, you joined the board of Serona medical yeah. also. Let, let me ask you this question. With so many new entrants into the imaging AI space, how do you see the market shaking out and what is required for true competitive advantage in imaging I haven't AI? a clue. I haven't a clue. Yeah. I, I mean, I, here's somebody who never predicted what, what happened with chat GPT. And I'm saying, ooh, you know, there's a lot there. So, but Serona is, is first and foremost, building cloud-based, cloud-native solutions with reporting stations, dictation, and then adding AI. And they're what I would call shovel-ready. They're, they're, whoever has the best AI apps, you can just plug them in. And the whole idea is to make the radiologist more efficient. Because radiologists today can't, you know, they can't really make their salary anymore yeah. unless you make them more efficient. And it's either adding health professionals like nurse practitioners or physician assistant or super techs, or it's also make the reporting more efficient. Yeah. So I, you know, I had this vision in 1994, I was chair of radiology, you're 92, and the chair of pathology left and they were having a hard time recruiting somebody that up to Hopkins standards at that time. And I went to the Dean and said, let us take over pathology because radiology and pathology should be one specialty. And my view of radiology is that we are the primary care gatekeepers for certainly for hospitalized patients, but increasingly for outpatient. And we should be hiring primary care docs or nurse practitioners and dealing with the patients you know, the patient comes to us for the workup and evaluate. You know, you cannot do anything in the hospital without radiology. You, you, you absolutely can't, right? So what's next is going to be liquid biopsy. And radiology should be embracing genetics and that technology so that it becomes a part just like a clinical lab test that pathology does. I mean, I think it's an incredibly bright future for radiology because, you know, the diagnostic part is really important. We are so, the informatologists. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great word. Yeah. So, but you know, we've got to get out of our mold and think more boldly. Now, University of Texas and their new medical school brought Nick Bryan down there from Penn after he retired and, and he's overseeing pathology and radiology. And, and Nick is a very broad thinker. So maybe yeah. the, 
yeah, I, I think it's great, but we need to, you know. I, I got to tell you, though, Bill, right now, being on the front line and trying to advise a large, diverse health system about how to invest in AI in a meaningful way that brings ROI and that doesn't, you know, take up too much people's time so that they can still be productive. It's a very daunting environment right you now. You can't. You can't. You've got 20,000, probably, you've got a million people with PhDs who are working on this stuff. I think the what needs to happen is have your clinicians working with really top flight AI people who are likely not at the hospital and may maybe not be at University of Arizona. I mean, they may be one or two, you know, with thing, any area expertise counts. And, you know, the world expert is worth light years ahead, whether you're do, making software or whether you're making diagnosis from CT scan. And so, you know, my sister years ago had a question of a spinal lesion and they said, well, it's probably benign, but we're going to do a biopsy. She was in California. I said, get a ticket, a round trip to Baltimore and come see Elliot Fishman. And she comes in for a 10 minute scan he looks at it, says it's benign. You can take it to the bank, and she went home. And ten years later, she's fine. You know that that expertise. Now, now we can have more expertise with AI, and we need to couple it. But I mean, there are some people in radiology. Clearly, some of the young people coming in for residency who have computer science background. But it's mostly going to be translating our needs into AI solutions. Well, honestly, Bill, when I think back to the skill set that you brought to your unique career, you know, starting right at the beginning with all of your engineering, not only prowess, but, you know, your innate talents that you established while in high school, you know, as we fast forward to the modern era, you know, it is the, you know, new medical students and residents who understand the design of uh, neural networks, of advanced algorithms, and, you know, who have this sort of innate familiarity with the whole nature of information transfer and aggregation that will have the same type of transformative impact on our field that, that you did through Resinex and, and the other companies that you were involved in. Well, I don't know if I had an impact, but I know that the young people, the world is in the young people's hands. Yeah. And I think, you know, the technology has been in the hands of a few people and, and it's going to be available to a lot of people. And so the people that can do a lot are the ones who have the know-how about what the medical need is. Yeah. It's always about medical need and, and then taking best of breed. And that's why I think betting on a single AI app is probably not going not gonna to do it. Right. Now, now, you've served on so many corporate boards from large public companies such as IBM, Novartis, and T. Rowe Price to private companies from the startups that we discussed to more mature companies like Radiology Partners. As a former board member of Rad Partners, I'm interested in your thoughts on the trends in practice consolidation by large private equity-backed companies such as Rad Partners. What do you see as the natural evolution of radiology group practice in this era of private equity-backed megagroups? I don't know the answer. <laughs> I joined Radiology Partners with the idea that this would not be a company that goes public and disappears or, you know, that they may have additional investors. You know, they built a lot of infrastructure to do that. But, 
you know, it's hard. It, it's just hard to tell. I mean, any any company, and I don't care whether it's Kodak, you know, or whether it's Radiology Partners, you know, to last 10 or 20, 30, 40 years is, is, is really hard in, in, in this environment. Now, does that mean it's going to hurt the radiologist? I don't think so. I mean, you're still going to have radiology in, unless radiology is wiped out by AI, which I don't think is going to happen shortly. It may happen longer term. So it's a question about really companies' ability to see the trends and figure out how to embrace them. And they have a wonderful platform. They have the data that people need to train the AI things on. And you know, so there's, a, there's an opportunity there. I, I was on, it's not on my resume, but I was on a pediatric dental service company, private equity backed, that d delivered pediatrics dentistry to children on Medicaid. Talk about a difficult problem. And it was the very successful problem, but the, the Department of Justice went at us because they hated private equity. But we were serving, you know, a million kids a year. We had really high quality. But, you know, at some point you have to sell it and DOJ blocked the sale. And then we, it was a long story. But the company was boom coming along and then COVID hits and nobody goes to the dentist, particularly in the inner cities. So I was told the company is just is going bankrupt. But it provided such a wonderful service. Was it bad that they went out of business? Well, it's unfortunate. But look at how many millions of kids they probably took care of that wouldn't have gotten. These are kids who come in with blown out mouths and had to have complete dental re reconstruction. So, and, you know, it, it can be good, but it's, it's tricky. It's, and, you know, especially if you're dealing with Medicaid or Medicare. Yeah. Because yeah. you're I always mean, one bullet away from being in the gun sites. Of yeah, the, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that sounds like a really unique company. Uh, just kind of turning back to the radiology, private equity backed and rad partners, you know, as you discussed, and with margins for professional radiology services continuing to shrink from both the revenue and expense sides, how do these companies succeed when a portion of the margin needs to provide return for third party investors? The answer is by being more efficient and by dealing with issues. The real issue is that the small players, there are large private radiology groups, and, and they seem to think that they're doing pretty well, many of them. But many of the issues, like surprise billing, you have to have enough horsepower to spend a fortune on surprise billing, fighting surprise. And you can't do that as a, as a small practice. So... It's going to go somewhere. Maybe the small practices will be owned by hospitals or something. But Radiology Partners is, is I think, you know, they have probably the most talented management team I've ever worked with. They really know what they're doing. And they have seem to have good values. That can change over time as management changes. But, that you know, the same things happen in groups. You know, you get somebody who heads up a group and then all of a sudden everybody leaves. So there's no, there's no, there's no permanence to anything other than performance. So the extent to which they can perform better as than anybody else, they'll be fine. And I hope that I hope that they do. So, yeah. And I, you know, I never saw in, in that in the dental services company. I said I'll only get involved to the 
private equity group. I only get involved if quality is number one. So we went in there, and there was another. There was a pediatric dentist on the board who, who I knew at Minnesota. It was a, one of the deacons of pediatric dentistry, and I said, "I'm only going to do this if you put in digital radiography." And commit. They first. I'm only do this if you commit to quality. They said, "Okay, we'll." And they looked at the bill for digital radiography, and they gulped and they put it in. But what it allowed us to do was every child had a digit, and we developed our own digital health record. So every child had a record that we could send then to on a spot basis or a problematic basis to an expert pediatric radiologist around the country who could review the films and the, and, and the treatment. And so I thought we had the, the best quality, of, even better than Hopkins quality, even though they started the patient safety thing. It was really amazing. And they did it. They, they didn't, and I think it eventually paid dividends for the company. But there are other people who don't do that. They're, they're willing to cut corners. So. Yeah. So, you know, you, you, with all of these incredibly high responsibility positions and such, I'm sure that you need to do things to unwind and recharge your batteries. What sorts of yeah. things do you do outside of all of these professional activities in order to, you know, relax and re-energize? So, you know, I'm taking more time off. I get grandkids and hopefully be able to see them more often. And my wife and I are do things. She's a, a professional soprano, so I go along as the trailing spouse as she performs, does classical music. Opera? You know, I play the piano. I actually thought during COVID I would play a lot. I didn't. I got so preoccupied. I'll probably get back playing the piano. I like to learn new things. I'm actually spending time learning about software and, and, and artificial intelligence. And so that, that that's fine. I, you know, I don't need to be, I, I, you know, I don't want to be, I was on a lot of boards and I'm, you know, getting off boards in general, because I don't want to be somewhere on somebody else's time, time scale. And I still have, you know, people who I mentor for fun. So I, it, you know, I don't have any complaints. I still don't have enough time in a day. Yeah. And, you know, and the problem with retirement is you get up a little later you have a cup of coffee, you're now reading three or four or five newspapers, and all of a sudden it's 11 o'clock and it's time for lunch. <laughs> That's a problem. <laughs> and nothing's happened, you know? Yeah, yeah. it's okay. I, I understand you're a pilot as well. Are you still flying? Uh, no, no, I had to give that for when I retired. It's just flying is the most fun thing I ever did, but it requires a lot of hours. You, you can't just go out. Allow us to fly around. They call it the hundred-dollar hamburger. It's probably a thousand-dollar hamburger. You know, you you rent a plane and you fly over the eastern shore and have a hamburger and come back. But you, you really can't do that anymore. The, the airspace is well, you're around here or in Bay Area, really complicated, and you've got to know the rules. And if you screw up one iota, you're in really in the in, in deep yogurt. So, but it was fun. Yeah, I loved flying. I taught the course in flying, too, at Hopkins, a short course. And we got everybody a free hour from the local flight school. And we used Flight Simulator, Microsoft, which is very good to learn how to fly, if you're interested in learning how to fly. Something that's yeah. always sort of been on my bucket list that I've never been able to yeah. activate on. Yeah, 
Yeah, you that's, can. You're in an area where you can do that. Yeah, that's true. So looking back at this point, at everything, what would you say have been your most rewarding moments as a leader? I wouldn't rank anything because I, I, I put it differently. And this is what I tell my students. Okay, you are, you're 30 or you're 40 or you're 90 and you're on your deathbed. You've got a death sentence with cancer or something. Now look back on your life. What are the things you do differently? Some people say, well, I play golf. Well, I don't really miss playing golf. I wasn't very good at it, and I didn't, never played it very much. Some of the things I did physically I can't do anymore because of hips and back surgery. But other than that, I don't really have any, you know, I don't have any complaints. And again, as I, I, what I really look back are, look at the people I've worked with. Look at the people that I've met. You know, I've met several presidents, but I hosted George Bush Sr. for dinner, Bush 41. And we administered for a while, Hopkins did the Albert Schweitzer Award. And what people didn't really know that Bush, when he was president, was the one who lobbied Giscard d'Estaing and Maggie Thatcher to allow Germany to reunite because they were dead set against reunification. And so we gave him that award. And part of that, we invited him to dinner at the president's house. And a wonderful man, just down to earth. So I said to him, I said, well, I know you were a baseball player, but I heard that you'd met Babe Ruth. And he said, yeah. I said, when I was captain of the Yale baseball team, Babe Ruth came to college campus and gave a talk. And so a week later after the Oh, so then we go over to the auditorium where he was going to speak. And I said, President Bush, I said, I know I would guarantee, have guaranteed standing room only crowd, but you're a baseball man and you'll understand that the, the Orioles, the Baltimore Orioles are playing in the playoffs for the first time in 10 years. He said, no problem. So we get over there and it, it is a packed audience and standing room only. And then he gets up and he says, I asked Dr. Brody, what I should speak about. And Dr. Brody said, speak about 10 minutes. There's a playoff game on. <laughs> anyway, the next week I get a letter, a handwritten note, thank you note from President Bush and a photograph of George Bush when he was at Yale in his baseball uniform with Babe Ruth autographed. And so the Babe Ruth was from Baltimore. So he called up the Babe Ruth Museum and said, do you have this photo? He said, no, we've never heard of it. And so I emailed him back, or I mean, a handwritten thank you note saying, oh, I'm going to treasure, I would treasure this for the, for the rest of my life, but the Babe Ruth Museum doesn't have one. So I might have to give mine to them unless you, so he sent another copy, which we sent over to the Babe Ruth Museum. And when Time Magazine had the, 2000 millennium edition and they had all these photographs one of the that was the photo one of the photographs in that and the cover time magazine but he, he was you know incredible so you meet people like that who are smart humble accomplished and you meet some of the others who are the opposite fabulous <laughs> you know as somebody once said oh this person's all hat all hat and no cattle <laughs> wow. Well, yeah. yeah, Dr. William Brody, I can't thank you enough for sharing so much of your journey with us. 
so many pearls along the way, such amazing stories. We are, are really privileged to have been able to spend this time with you. And I want to thank you for joining us on today. Yeah, thanks. You, you've been a good friend, even though we've never been in the same place together. We've been at the same places, but not together. And I wish you great luck. And thank you. Please join me next month for the first of two very special episodes of Taking the Lead in celebration of the American College of Radiology's centennial. We will hear from two panels over subsequent months. Our first panel will include five senior leaders in our field, Jonathan Lewin, Carolyn Meltzer, Larry Muroff, Mary Scanlon, and Elliot Siegel. All five panelists began their radiology training in the 1970s through the 1980s and bring tremendous perspective to the field of radiology and its evolution over the past 35 to 50 years. Together, we look at how far the field has progressed and what opportunities and risks are foreseen for the future. Before closing this episode, I want to remind you about the RLI Summit. This will be my 12th summit, and I have thoroughly enjoyed each one. Spending a few days away from the practice to focus on leadership insights provided by top business school professors and radiology luminaries is a truly transformative experience. This year's RLI Summit is being held September 29th to October 1st at the Seaport Hotel in Boston, Massachusetts, just minutes from Logan Airport on the historic waterfront. To celebrate my 12 years of Summit participation, we are offering our Taking the Lead listeners 12% off current rates. Simply register at acr.org slash summit and use the code RLITTL12 at checkout. I look forward to seeing you there. Taking the Lead is a production of the Radiology Leadership Institute and the American College of Radiology. Special thanks go to Anne-Marie Pasco, Senior Director of the RLI and co-producer of this podcast, to Port City Films for production support, Linda Sowers, Megan Swope, and Debbie Kakal for our marketing and social media, Brian Russell, Jen Pendo, and Crystal McIntosh for technical and web support, and Shane Yoder for our theme music. Finally, thank you, our audience, for listening and for your interest in radiology leadership. I'm your host, Jeff Rubin, from the University of Arizona College of Medicine in Tucson. We welcome your feedback, questions, and ideas for future conversations. You can reach me on Twitter at G-E-O-F-F-R-U-B-I-N or using the hashtag RLITakingTheLead. Alternatively, send us an email at RLI at ACR.org. I look forward to you joining me next time on Taking the Lead.